multicultural headquarters of the future capital of the free-thinking states of America known as Los Angeles, this is the Drunken Taoist Podcast. Tonight, it's interview time again, as political commentator, amateur historian, and true podfather Dan Carlin joins us to discuss teaching folks to think for themselves, changing your opinion when the facts change, living life tight but loose, wildcard throwing gods of history, the mysterious L.A. family running around in Dan's favorite pants, and wanting to let you all know if the show's too smart for you, it's not his fault. And now... Quietly awaiting my one-way ticket to Guantanamo, I'm Rich Evers. And my partner in crime, answering hopelessness with a defiant smile and a raised middle finger, Daniele Bolelli. Away we go. Welcome back, everybody. A very exciting episode today. Uh, in honor of the number 23, um, we managed to get the, the man himself, Dan Carlin, on, on, the, on the Skype line, which... Sounds pretty decent. It's not as nice as the dulcet towns off our own mics. But uh, before we get any further, ladies and gentlemen, Daniele Bellelli. Hey, 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 hey. Uh, Skype, yes, that's a first. We've never done this before. We don't really want to do that that much in the future either. But we more than happily make an exception for Dan Carlin because he's just too cool of a person to get a chance to chat with. So we'll, uh, you know, we'll continue doing live episodes. I mean, not live, but, you know, in-person episodes for the most part. And then there's going to be the occasional exception only in super random cases such as this one. But yes, we are at episode 23. We just finished chatting with Dan. was incredibly fun. Um, so let's take care of business quickly so you guys can jump into our conversation. Uh, first, a couple of things. I know several of you have posted on the Drunken Taoist Forum with questions for Dan. Because of time constraints, there was only so much we could cover. So we did cover some of them. There were a whole bunch that we couldn't. Apologies for that. Some of them we may be able to reuse for... A future dance visit, you know, if he comes back on the podcast. He said he might be willing to. Exactly. Some of them, there are a couple of things that I want to mention that he had answered uh, privately that I can throw out there for listeners. Like, there are some questions about what kind of books he recommends. And one thing that he says uh, in terms of, you know, finding out about certain par- um, portions of history, one thing that Dan was saying was that Typically, um, those questions are from people who are looking for sort of entry-level books on uh, a topic to become familiar with. And uh, by now, he reads such super specialized stuff that he wouldn't really be um, have an excellent answer for that. So that's why we didn't touch on it. And another one, somebody asked about what kind of hard evidence it, there is for the existence of the leaders and prophets of most of the major world religions. And I can give you the answer to that, which is really, really freaking thin when you're talking about most of them. Because whether you're talking about Judaism, Buddhism, Christianity, Islam, you're talking about things that in the best cases, they are about 1400 years old. Um, They are usually the facts, if there are any, are passed on through oral tradition for a while before they are written down by people who are now sort of the custodians of these religious traditions so obviously have inevitably they have a bias involved so when you're talking about hard evidence no there isn't a whole lot that doesn't mean that they never existed or some of the stories are not true it just means that the if you're looking for pure objective evidence there's not a whole lot of it but then again the same can be said about most of human history for that matter having said that let's jump into 
quick thank you to our two regular sponsors now as we announced last time um, in addition to Datsusara who's always has been our first and regular sponsor that we dearly love we now have on it uh, Mr. Aubrey Marcos jumped on board with us and uh, decided to also sponsor the podcast so having on it on board makes me particularly happy I'm gonna post soon on Twitter or Facebook or something Aubrey sent me this um a primal bell one of the coolest kettlebells ever with the face of a chimp sculpted in it if any of you guys are remotely into kettlebells god that one is just too cool to be true is that the 85 pound one no <laughs> 35 36 oh, actually that's reasonable but still it's yeah, uh, still moving it's, something. it's a piece of art in the form of a kettlebell it's awesome and that's one thing i like about on it for you guys if you want to check it out there's a lot of different things you know maybe you are into the supplements which is the bread and butter of what Tony does great maybe you're not maybe you like their exercise equipment or maybe you like some of the foods that they there are like many many different options to choose from so please check out we'll put the link in the episode notes if uh, you are buying from on it you would be awesome if you can use our link not because you know it's not an this is not an affiliate thing but it is something that yes you guys got a discount for and b lets aubrey know that he didn't make a mistake in sponsoring us so show him some love that would be nice and again as usual so show some love also to chris odell from datsusara for the amazing hemp gear that he has a million thanks to our affiliates sure design that by the way sure design i just saw something on his website that was so beautiful any of you guys were into yoga do yourself a favor get the yoga mat bag that sure design has released there are different colors but they all have this ganesh image drawn on it i want to just start carrying around the yoga mat just so i can have that bag because it's so damn beautiful but in any case um coracao chocolate Uh, needless to say if you guys are in the mood for sweets that would be the way to go and audible.com if um, you guys find yourself in dire need of more audio material that our podcast our podcasting doesn't supply audible.com is an excellent choice you get the first month free and then after that if you decide you like it you can try it out for free and then after that it's 15 dollars a month uh, for all of these things that's usara on niche or design kurokao chocolate audible.com please check the links in the episode notes uh, our own t-shirts as usual we are stocked so if you need one of our t-shirts either gray or red shoot me an email uh, with color and size i'll make sure we have it in stock before um before you pay anything and if you happen to get a nice picture of yourself someplace awesome with your drunken Davos shirt on please sir send it our way because uh, it's always fun to see yeah i want to put a thread on uh, the forum because i have several pictures that are really cool i want to start putting them up uh thank you for uh, to daisy house music uh, for the awesome soundtrack that they provided what else uh, amazon of course as usual if uh, you guys buy anything from amazon there's actually a quite a few parents among you because i've seen the links that of the stuff that you guys buy there's a lot of baby stuff i'm seeing popping out all over the place babies and sex toys which i guess are related because probably one comes first and then there's the other part but <laughs> some of you guys may also want to invest in contraception in the middle actually. yes yeah, yeah. it's 
But um, we're reducing babies. We're going to toys now. Yeah, that thing away from me. That also could be uh, how it works. <laughs> and on that beautiful note, a uh, quick thank you to some of the people who donated to the podcast in the last couple of weeks. <gasps> it's budgeting time. Yeah, let's screw up a few people's last names, first names, everything. Let the pottering begin. I'm going to start with an easy one so I can um, feel good about myself. Steve Marchi. I can denote some Italian... Uh, being an, probably an Italian-American name, I'm guessing that in the US they pronounce it Marchi or some shit like that. That's not how it's supposed to be pronounced. So for once, I'll be the one who got it right. Brexit, yeah. Yes, this is fun. Steve Marchi, or however the fuck they pronounce it. Aaron Bertram, Spencer Hanna. Chris Fitzpatrick. Um, Marcus, um, this is an interesting one. Marcus sent us this. Uh, Marcus Pallex from uh, um, Twitter at, at that squad farm uh, asked us to plug the um, Aloha Mahi High podcast now on iTunes. And uh, I like his thing. They are building a natural farming educational center on 15 acres in Hilo, Hawaii, where BJ Penn is from, in case you MMA fans among you are wondering. And what he's planning to do is to host small groups of educational events uh, and then broadcast them to the internet, primarily about sustainable agriculture, human wellness optimization, and things like that. I thought this was an awesome project, so I'm more than happy to mention it right now. And thank you very much for the donation. And also among other donations that we want to very much thank, there's Connell Keenan, Mike Patrick, Scott Westerman, Patrick Smith, and Jay Fordyce. Oh, I think Jay was concerned about his last name being butchered horrendously, so he gave me a pronunciation guide for it, which did was you follow sweet. It or did you just I did, I did. Okay. I'm, I'm sweet. I'm not... Other than that, anything else we need to touch on? Uh, Team Drunken Taoist on Kiva continues to grow. So, you know, if you guys have any interest, I can forward you a first free loan for you to get a taste of it. Uh, Loan 25 bucks to somebody in the world to help them get a cow, help them get a water pump, a thousand different things. It's a pretty awesome site. And, you know, now that we're up and running, we want to hunt the Christians down. They did $3.8 million in donations last year. So we got a little ways to go to catch up. Which nice is um, the top Kiva group is uh, agnostics, atheists, and... And like-minded. They have the number one group, so they're more giving than the Christians, which I find pretty interesting. I'm glad everybody's giving, so it doesn't matter who you want to affiliate with. Help out your fellow man and toss some money out. And on a more important uh, note, the tomato farm is about to unleash many hundreds of tomatoes when it's from my backyard so very excited about that i am ready to be with and a bit terrified about our avocado tree not being aware of it's my first avocado tree to actually help out and there were probably 30 40 good avocados when we arrived in may nice well the second crop is rolling there's probably six or seven hundred on this tree right now i can eat no it doesn't seem like a bad problem but you no. know as far as picking and actually maintenance of it a little more than i dreamed yeah. of once again, good uh, Western world problems. Yeah, and excited to be a part of it. Give, send them over. Don't even worry about that. I'll be I'd probably like having them in the back of the car just to nice. hand them out as we go. But so uh, the homemade guacamole is about six weeks away at the most. I'm down. So that's my agrarian. Um, oh, I'll give you guys a tip in this case. This is the Bolelli Marta Stewart moment where I give you guys an awesome avocado recipe. This is something I've done always since I was a kid and I've never seen people in US use it. So just in case. So you slice open an avocado, um, take out the seed. Now you have these two perfect halves. Um, what you're going to do is you put into the hole, you put olive oil, 
extra virgin, some good olive oil, whatever that is. Um, pepper, if you like it a little spicy. Salt, lemon, and I think that's it, if I'm not mistaken. So you can, you don't feel it, feel it, so it's not super oily, but you know, to your own taste, but you put that amount inside the holes in the two halves, you grab a spoon and you just start scooping out. Good God, that's awesome. That's not a bad one. I've also taken a bit of uh, salsa that I like and set it on the grill for just a little bit to kind of get it all cooking together. That's pretty nice as well. Avocados, nature's gift, and tomatoes aren't bad either. But it's the growing season in California like it always is. Indeed. Um, I couldn't be more excited about this. I've been a nervous wreck. You know, I had a crazy couple of days. All I made a 750-mile round-trip driving escapade yesterday just to make sure I could be here for this Dan Carlin interview and it couldn't be any better he's the he's just as cool as you'd hope he would be fascinating it's more about him than it is about hardcore history but I think that's what we were after anyway and um, I just couldn't say thank you to him enough times so here we go guys this is it This is Dan. How are you guys? Hey, Dan. How are you? I'm okay. How are you reading me audio-wise? Uh, five by five there. Roger Wilco. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Okay. Nice. Okay, guys. Our guest today, a very, very special guest. Um, not that so far we've been slacking because I've loved every single person that I've shown up here so far. But um, today we have, um, without even turning to superlatives, which I'm known for using and overusing, we do have one of the greatest podcasters in the world, Mr. Dan Carlin, who's the host of Common Sense and Hardcore History. Welcome to the Drunken Taoist Podcast, Dan. Well, thank you. That is quite an introduction. I never even think of myself that way. We're just I always still think we're at this little club of podcasters. <laughs> you know, I, I somebody told me the other day there's more than 200,000 podcasts and I think my jaw hit the floor, but thank you very much for having me. I'm really glad to be on the program. Well, you actually have um Hardcore History. I mean, I actually love both of your podcasts, but Hardcore History in particular is the one that I the one podcast that I listen to most religiously. There are several podcasts I really enjoy that I really like, but yours, I pretty much never miss an episode. So, yeah, we're uh, big fans here. I think I make that easy by only getting out one show like every three months. So, so it's <laughs> you not do. like you guys get a big backlog of shows you have to wade through. You really do, because sometimes with common sense, it's like, oh, Jesus, I just started, you know, a year ago, I have to go back like 50 million episodes with Harker History is a lot easier. So, <laughs> No, I know, we keep you guys waiting on those. Nice, nice. Well, let's get the ball rolling. I wanted to start with discussing history in general, which I find funny that... Um, when students in a high school are asked to rate their favorite subjects, history is always at the bottom of the barrel, even worse than math, which, I mean, Jesus Christ, how, how bad do you have to be to be worse than math, you know? <laughs> and yet at the same time, uh, when Hollywood makes historical movies, they tend to be super successful, historical fiction is very popular, and podcasts such as yours are extremely popular. So my question is, what do you think is the reason for this love-hate relationship? You know, on one end, the hatred for academic history, and on the other end, the love for the more popular history. Well, you know, I, I talk about this, and you know, you'll you'll know this already. I talk about this sometimes on on my program, and it's a theory more than something I can prove. Mm -hmm. But you know, history is and has been transitioning for forty or fifty years now from something that 
the colleges and universities used to classify as a subject that belonged in the humanities mm -hmm. with religion and language and law and art and music and those kind of subjects into something that's a science that belongs with archaeology and anthropology and things like that. There's a focus when you get into a science on the um, on, on, on not not minutia so much as, as on on things that are specialties where really it kind of freezes out the lightweight sort of just barely interested people you have to really for example if you want to get into geology mm -hmm. you really have to kind of be into rocks i mean it's not the kind of thing <laughs> that attracts you until you're there and then you know you get into it deeply and then you can get into the wonderful nuances when history was something written almost as a storybook which you know if you go find a history from 50 years ago they're much more accessible to a mm -hmm. general reader because they play up some of the romance and some of the drama and and a lot of the really human elements that you would find in a really good play or a really good uh, HBO series when when it becomes more of a science there's a tendency for it to get drier more analytical more clinical um I've often thought that it's a trade-off. I mean, I certainly think we get better history nowadays in terms of accuracy, mm -hmm. but I think we've lost something in terms of the color, the pageantry, um, the drama, and all that was accurate, too. It's just very hard to quantify in a scientific sense. So I think history becoming more like a dry science has killed a little bit of its appeal to your average Joe and Jane undergraduate student. Yeah, because, I mean, we can gain uh, in accuracy, but if we lose in interest, we're not really making such a good trade-off. You know, we can have the most accurate thing in the world, and yet if nobody cares to read it because it's so damn boring, then, you know, it kind of defeats the purpose. But well, on the other I, I mean, hand... And I always wonder how it even got boring. I mean, because the truth of the matter is, is, as you pointed out quite rightly, when you look at all these historical series or whatever, they're not making stuff up. All that drama, right. all that, I mean, that's there. Yep. So why on earth wouldn't you play that up? I've never understood that. And I think the better teachers um, that students get in history do that. Yeah, and that's that's exactly how it is. But the odd thing is that that's the exception to the rule rather than the rule. You know, the fact that somebody may be a good storyteller is an accident that then students will love you for it, but it's not something that either is required or encouraged by academia which is uh, kind of suicidal because then you leave uh, the field open to, um, you know, you're essentially not doing anybody a favor from your end because you are not taking care of something that people want. Good for you, I guess, good for a lot of people because in that sense, you have an opportunity to do what historians should do and don't. Well, and, uh, you know, just not to get too deeply into it, but, but history and the classics and all those things are in a very interesting period of self-examination and navel-gazing mm -hmm. in, uh, in universities where they're starting to question what's the real-world value of learning this kind of stuff. And, I mean, the classics discipline, you know, and classics is what teaches, you know, the old ancient history and all the writings from the Romans and the Greeks and all that stuff. I mean, they've pretty much torn their entire discipline apart trying to figure out what the point of learning all that stuff is. Mm -hmm. and, and and I think they totally miss 
the 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 non-obvious elements. I mean, sometimes education's got an obvious appeal. You know, if you want to be a doctor, you got to take pre-med. You got. Sure. I mean, there's 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 a practical approach. Yeah. But but a lot of the humanities, it's a much more oblique and non-linear kind of benefit. I mean, philosophy is mm-hmm. another perfect example. You know, what are you going to do with a philosophy degree? I don't know. Organize my entire <laughs> world around me, maybe? Right. It's, a, it's a lot harder to quantify that. Yeah, you know? of course. <laughs> Or, uh, yeah, there was a line from uh, Dragon, the movie about uh, Bruce Lee's life, where they said, what are you going to do with a philosophy degree? And he said, I have a very deep thoughts about being unemployed. <laughs> Well, and there is that. I mean, there's this idea that you're investing in education to eventually reap a financial reward. Right. That, to me, totally runs against the grain of the ninth, famous 19th century liberal education. And yet we all know we miss those kinds of people that that education used to churn out of the university system. But we don't seem to correlate the fact that we're not getting those kind of people because we're focusing more on the stuff that we can actually gain monetarily from instead of churning out people with a well-rounded foundation that they can pivot off of in the real world. Yeah, because that's one of the things that I find really weird. I mean, I teach history in college. It's how I got you know how i pay the bills and uh, the fact that students respond to what i do like i'm giving them the gospel or something and uh, i'm thinking well i'm just telling you cool stories what's and but then i look in the next classroom and i see what most people do and i'm like okay i get the point you know it's like to me it's like you need to give the stuff that students are interested in and so you'll talk about sex and food and blood and gore and uh, daily life and you know things that are real that are that elicit an emotional response that have uh, entertainment value that have uh, value in terms of subjects that one can relate to it's like if i was in the 1300s i would be seeing the world in this way and that way and that's what i would focus my day on maybe it's not only about uh, king so and so won the battle you know that's may not be the most important thing in your life when you are living in the middle of the 1300s. It's important, but it's definitely not the only one. And in that sense, you know, a lot of books that I read, even many of the ones that I assign for history courses, the best ones are written by non-historians. People who are either journalists or writers or somebody who will study history to a great extent, but then their talent is in storytelling and they are able to take the raw data that historians provide and turn it into something that people actually want to read. Well, and I think kind of what, what's been lost a little bit with this transition of history to, to a hard science or, or a semi-hard science is this idea, of, like, you know, if you're a history teacher, you understand this. Why are these kids learning history? And, and if you're going to test them on their knowledge at the end, what is it important that they know and why? What is it we're trying to transmit to them? You know, this is the classic names and dates question. Um, or, you know, some people get into the trying to understand what people's lives were at the time. The, the, the serious question I always get into is, is, is what is it you want these students to learn? And mm-hmm. why do you want them to know it? Um, you know, again, we get into that practical value question. But, but I, I think when you, when you see some of these classes taught, these teachers have a list of things that these students have to leave their classroom knowing. And I often would love to be a fly on the wall in the meeting amongst these educators and say, well, why do you have to know that? I mean, what, what, what is it that this student has to know this particular thing for, and how are they going to use that in the rest of their career or their teaching life or whatever? I, I think that's part of what makes the journalists writing history and the non-specialists writing history interesting is that they sit there and go, 
well, you don't have to know any of this yep. stuff. What's the stuff that you're going to be most interested in? And they pull that stuff out. Once you tell somebody, well, you have to know the deep ramifications of how Normans impacted Anglo-Saxon culture in England. I mean, okay, come on, try making that interesting. The journalist right. doesn't have to worry about that. He can just say, oh, you know what? This weirdo character was killing five guys on a bridge. And exactly. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yes. Just focus on the stuff the students will love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, in fact, is exactly, I remember when you're saying, you know, you would love to be the fly on the wall. I remember having those kind of meetings and asking other professors, you know, why why are we doing this? You know, what are we hoping to get out of it? What is that you got out of it? So that, you know, if we understand what you as a professor get out of it, maybe students will as well. And I would see just panic in their eyes, kind of like, why? What do you mean why? It's it's history. It's what I do. And it's like, yeah, but why? It's like, uh, I don't know. It's like, come on, man, if you don't know why, why should a student care? You know, if you are not crazy passionate about what you're doing, why should anybody else be, you know? And, I and I'm going to back up what you said about journalists being good people to write history. When I got out, and I've told this story before, so apologies to people who've heard it, but when I got out of um, school with a history degree, the school I went to actually printed up a form that was called What to Tell Your Parents About Choosing History. <laughs> and, and so it shows, shows you kind of how we were all a cabal of people organized to try to keep the major alive. But I got out not wanting to teach history, and so I didn't know what you do with it. And then I got into journalism and was surprised to find out that some of the journalists who could handle the roughest and toughest stories – I was a journalist in L.A. when mm -hmm. I started – and you have a bunch of journalists who are there to cover Hollywood and to look good and – so you have a few that could do the really hard, heavy lifting work, and invariably those guys had been history majors or those ladies had been history majors in school. And I remember one of them telling me the value to a journalist is how it allows you to have context mm -hmm. and to understand, you know, I mean, uh, as one of them said, you know, life is like a soap opera and you turn it on into the middle of the series. And unless you know how things got to where they are, you will never understand why this person hates that person or, you know, how this child came to be that person's baby or any yeah. of these other things. And so the reason I think journalists have a good feel for writing history is a lot of them were history majors in college. Yep, yep, yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. Well, now that we picked on academic historians enough, let's jump into something else. Um, there was in one of your, I think it was episode 32, I believe, the one old school toughness, you were discussing about the value of toughness, the, the idea itself of how on one end, we, we need to keep a balance as a society, as individuals, between on one end the toughness, on one end uh, love. On one end, you know, the idea that societies carve their way through to the top through becoming tough and lose it when they get spoiled by success and comfort and everything, everything easy. The same thing, I guess, could be applied to raising kids. You know, on one end, you want to protect them, you want to make their lives easier, which is great because it gives them confidence about the fact that they are loved and all of that. But if you do it too much, if you shelter them too much... They never leave. Yeah. <laughs> and you weaken them, ultimately, which is doing them a disservice. So it's like, how do you... I know you have kids. How do you do it in uh, your own life, this uh, delicate balance from a purely individual perspective between wanting to make things easier for yourself and for your loved ones and protecting and all of that, and at the same time pushing them and letting them deal with uh, the tough side of life? I think I failed at that. At that, at that uh, if you're asking me how do I how do I balance it, I don't. I think I think I I think 
that maybe there's a little metaphor here. First of all, let me back up and point out that that whole idea, the old school toughness idea, you know, when we talked about the history from the humanities era, this is a recurring theme that goes back all the way, as you know, to Greek times mm -hmm. where there's this this idea, this non-confirmed idea that societies rise and fall through a certain, um, uh, like a bell curve kind mm -hmm. of, you know, these poor, hard scrabble societies rise to greatness because their people are tough, hard scrabble people. And then because they become great, they get wealth and luxury and all this stuff, which generation after generation begins to weaken them. And because they've lost then these very qualities that allowed them to rise to greatness, they fall. And so whether or not this is true, up until about the mid-20th century, this was considered to be an understandable cycle. And to be honest, you can kind of look at societies and, and at least in a very superficial way, you know, draw that kind of conclusion, which is why I think that's that's existed for so long. Um, I think you could look at our own society in, in that old school toughness episode, I think and I'm trying to remember. I can never remember what we did like two weeks ago. But 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 I think we asked the question, imagine that we got into a war with our grandparents, uh, could we beat them? And I had one guy write me a letter and say, of course I could beat them. The guy's like 85. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I mean, the, the idea was that, that, that you know, so, I mean, could we drop an atomic bomb on another civilian population if that's what it took to win the war and if the people we were fighting would be willing to do that? And our grandparents or great-grandparents, depending on how old you are, uh, were able to do that. And what made them so much more tough, or maybe you could say callous, it depends mm -hmm. on the terms you want to use, than us, and, and did that convey upon them some sort of practical value? Was the country better, stronger, safer, or, you know, I mean, does, does a population's toughness, because toughness even is a weird term to define and quantify, but does that equal national greatness or a better country? If we are a weaker country or weaker individuals, does that translate into a weaker society? That was more what I was trying to examine because I find the entire question of toughness to be exactly the kind of thing that modern day scientific historians wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole yep. because how do you measure that? Right. I mean there's no way there's no way to ab objectively measure something that's more of a feeling or a mm -hmm. judgment or something like that. And yet that's where the real juicy part of life is is not the stuff that you can just observe in a lab under reproducible conditions it's the juice is in those things that cannot quite be quantified sometimes. Well, and here's the thing, you know, you, you, you pay these experts. In the old days, I mean, if, if you get a, a Stephen Hawking out there and mm -hmm. you bring him on your talk show because you want to hear what this great uh, physicist and thinker has come to, you know, in his brain, his own conclusions, that's because you trust that this guy's brilliant mind has been thinking about these problems for a long time and you want to hear what he's got to say about them. Mm -hmm. I, I think that in the old days historians didn't shy away from saying, I've studied history forever, I know more about it than you do, let me tell you the conclusions I've come to. Right. I think a lot of modern-day historians are uncomfortable with that, and yet I think a lot of us would like to hear what they have to say. Mm -hmm. You know, Absolutely. I, I want to I hear what those guys, what, what history seems to have taught the people who've studied it the most. And I think that when we talk about, you know, what students can or can't get out of history, I think we miss 
mm-hmm. having those people willing to share their ideas about what their expertise has taught them. And I think scientific historians are uncomfortable with that, and I can understand why, but it almost makes you want to split the discipline into two separate ones. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the one that we used to have where those people could be humanities-oriented people, and a modern-day scientific one that helps provide the framework and the facts and all that kind of stuff. Right. No, and it makes perfect sense, because some are good researchers who couldn't tell a story to anybody or two cents, and that some other people are great when it comes to taking the data and transforming it into an amazing story that people can relate to. And there are really two different sets of skills in that sense that don't often go within the same person. Uh, Having said that, uh, another topic that came up in several of your podcasts, in a recent episode you were talking about how torture has been a normal part of state business in some periods of history in many places around the world. The same thing could probably be said about other unpleasant things, at least to our eyes, anything from uh, racism, sexism, you know, things that today we tend to frown upon, yet they were completely the norm over long periods of human history. So I guess my question is, are most human beings just stupid, you know, kind of, are we just trained donkeys mindlessly absorbing what we are taught and... And only once enough people start diverging, then society as a whole turn around. I mean, it seems to be like there's always a minority questioning the norms of their times. But the vast majority, you know, today, if you are arguing the kind of racial ideas that were popular 100 years ago, you are some crazed KKK guy. 100 years ago, you are a perfectly normal human being. Uh do we just do most people just not question anything and go with whatever they are taught and uh, or w- what's your take on it wow i think that's a very deep question and i i don't know that i i have an answer for you cuz i ask that myself i mean mm-hmm. i'll give you a perfect example in my own little i'm a, i'm a white guy mm-hmm. let me tell you that at, at the beginning and in my own little bubble here uh, i was raised in a very multiracial city um always living and working with all different cultures, creeds, all that kind of stuff, very mm-hmm. comfortable with it. We elect a black president here in the United States, and in my own little bubble here, I think, okay, well, you know, you can see society moving forward. Racism, for example, is one of those things you mentioned is is uh, is starting to really uh, recede into the horizon and, and, and all these kind of things. And then you look, I mean, I, the biggest shock to me, I think, has been following some of the comments that people can make after news stories, you know, Mm -hmm. when they they weigh in on some news story on these political websites that I frequent. And the amount of overt racism in these comments is so shocking to me that I have to tell myself that I've totally... Perhaps, unless those people are really like very, very, some of them may be trolls, mm-hmm. some of them, I mean, you never know sure. what these, but but you start to believe that maybe it's partly because I've been ensconced in this, in this white little bubble where I'm not encountering this kind of stuff, that this is really not has receded as far into the background as I think. And, and, and so when you say that, you start to wonder if cultures can change slightly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, obviously, you go back a 100 years and racism is much more prevalent than today. Mm-hmm. But I think the tendency perhaps is to swing the pendulum too far in the other direction and assume because it isn't like it was a 100 years ago that it's practically a thing of the past. And then you go read these comments on these message boards and you think, how representative are these comments? Right. You yeah, know, um, I know exactly uh, what you're talking about. Yes, it's cr- and so so I question my own ability to even form a good judgment about this because of how wrong I was 
initially. I mean, it's, it's very possible that, for example, just taking racism as opposed to sexism and all these other things, you might have to be a person of color mm-hmm. to really understand. I mean, what was that book from 40 years ago now, uh, Black Like Me, or you know, the guy who dressed up, a white uh, journalist who dresses up as a black guy mm-hmm. and then goes around the city to, to experience it from a black person's perspective. It's possible that that would be the only way to understand mm-hmm. how bad it really is. And I think a person like myself might be able to fool themselves and, and because of that make inaccurate judgments. So you ask me a question like that and I'm not sure that I'm qualified to answer it. And right. I think you might, have to, you might have to be a woman, a young, pretty woman mm-hmm. working in a modern-day workplace to really answer the sexism question. Uh, again, as a white male, it might be, oh, we don't, I don't see any of that. But... Dan, let's, let's get you down to rural Tennessee for a couple of weeks, and I believe we could answer that question for you pretty quickly because I well, spent and, and 15 here, years in Nashville. And, you know, in the metro areas, it really is changing. But when you get into more rural and, uh, i got to say, red state sort of areas, um, they haven't changed their mind one, one bit since 1960. I think there's people, though, would also add that, that I think we're fooling themselves if we think that it's not like that in the north. I mean, the mm-hmm. stereotype has always been that the south is like that. But I bet you can find a lot of people who say, listen, upstate New York would shock you sometimes. Mm-hmm. Sad but so, true. Yeah, so uh, so that's the kind of question I, I not only don't feel qualified to answer, I, I find it fascinating to talk about, mm-hmm. um, but I'd, lo- I'd love to hear an expert opinion on that myself. And on that note, sometimes you seem puzzled by, you know, you touch in the podcast about some of the darkest aspects of human history and human nature, and sometimes you seem puzzled by them. Like you are discussing them and going into it and going into the details, and then you have these poses where you're like, damn, you know, what was going through these people's head? Why? How is it even possible? You know, you seem to have this genuine question mark that pops up once you discuss some of these very heavy intense disturbing tales Uh, how much of it are you truly just how how much does that really stumble you and how much are you just kind of doing it also for audience sake to try to get them to relate to that point like because you you do talk about those things a lot and so i'm wondering now um, your take on it because often you seem to i don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but often there seem to be that question mark after you go into these very heavy tales of how is it possible that some human beings would do that? Well, I have a, I have a, you know, and we all do this. All, all podcasters, I think, have a sort of a philosophy to their program that, mm-hmm. that they sort of base, you know, how you do what you do on. And mine was always geared toward what I find fascinating. So I pick these topics not because I think the audience is going to like them, mm-hmm. but because I'm fascinated by them. And, and and so when you hear those things, you're hearing the sorts of questions that made that particular topic interesting to me. And uh, and so a lot of these human questions like, you know, I think, I think one of the ones you're referring to is, you know, how could people do this to other people? Mm-hmm. These are things I think about all the time. And the story that I perhaps am talking about when I say that is probably in part interesting because that's a mind-blowing aspect of that story to me. How can people do that to one another? And so when I pose those questions, I do that sincerely from a perspective of a questioning – student maybe, somebody Mm -hmm. who's, 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 who looks at human nature. And, and I think these questions are unanswerable. I mean, I right. think this is going back to the Greek philosophers where, you know, you'd have 12 students and Plato running around and you'd be asking him questions about human nature and the gods and all these kind of things. I mean, these are the endless forever, um, you know, dilemmas. And I, I think 
posing them in this history program allows us to get back to some of you know what I would think you would learn in a classics department or mm-hmm. as you might say a, ph- a philosophy department and break down traditionally long-standing questions of humanity right um in in, in do- you know I don't mean to get too high-minded about these but enduring themes like man's inhumanity to man mm-hmm. and all these questions that much, 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 much smarter and, and deeper people than than yours truly have have tried to wrestle with. I'm trying to introduce or reintroduce people to these giant themes that I think simply by thinking about we improve the species. You know, and when mm-hmm. we talk about the the liberal education uh, from liberal, not being political, sure. but the the humanities education yep. of the 19th century, I think those are the kind of things reading the classics and becoming educated in history naturally fosters. And if you want to say, what does modern society, at least in the United States, not do as well as it used to do, I think that's what it doesn't do as well as it used to do. And so I think by, and and listen, that's what I have that I can bring to the table over the history channel or anything like that. They're not bringing you those deep questions. Mm -hmm. And and I like doing that. And I don't have the answers. I think meditating on the questions makes us better people. It does, because, I mean, when you bring it up in the podcast, it forces the listeners to sit there and just, because, again, you don't provide the answer, but you keep poking the audience with the question, and it does force you to to ask yourself and come up with your own answers, which may not be the hardcore, objective, uh, provable answers, but at least some working theory of how is it possible that somebody would do that to somebody else? How is it possible that certain behaviors that are abhorrent today would be the norm at a different point in time and so on and so forth? Well, and let's examine it from this standpoint too. If I did give you answers, mm-hmm. would you believe me? And, right. sh- and should you believe me? A lot of this stuff, you know, we did a show on the dropping of the atomic bomb and yep. I tried to examine it from a, a, a sort of a different perspective. And then in the end, I'm not trying to leave you with an opinion. I'm trying to let you decide for yourself. And and it could be a completely legitimate opinion either way, but I'm trying to put you into the shoes of the people who had to make these decisions Mm -hmm. and realize that you could legitimately and rationally fall on either side of that issue. So, So if I actually had the answers and I actually gave them to you, I think it would be less useful in your own world than giving you the questions and letting you solve them for yourself. I agree 100%. I think that's part of one of the many ingredients that make your podcast so fascinating. That's for sure. I appreciate the um, podcast. Some of the listeners have questions about the mechanics of your podcast, because one of the comments that showed up when we asked some of our listeners, you know, what questions would you have for Dan? was uh, many people remark how smooth the podcast ran, how you're able to make it flow perfectly for hours on end. And so they were wondering, you know, how much of it is scripted, how much of it you're going uh, freely, how much editing does it require, how much preparation, and how many books do you read? So some of those mechanical questions, I guess. Um, There are no scripts. Mm -hmm. Uh, If there were scripts, it wouldn't sound like it sounds. And and I you know I was a talk show host before I did this and so talking for long periods of time <laughs> is, is something that I guess I'm trained to do. Right. Um, but there you know once these shows I mean when we started the Hardcore History podcast they were so short that I could just sit there and do them you know walk in the studio do mm-hmm. them and walk out. 
Uh, and I used to be very against editing. When I first started, I was worried that editing would screw up my chops, so mm-hmm. to speak, and that, that you would screw up your ability, you know, like a muscle. If you didn't use your, your I can just walk in there and talk freely for 30 minutes muscle, it would go away. Um, and over time, we started to use editing because there were not things that I used to have in radio. For example, in radio, they, they had a cough button so that if you had to clear your throat or you had to cough, you could hit this button and it would cut out your microphone long enough for you to you know, cough or mm-hmm. whatever. So then when you had to do that during the podcast, you would have to go to your editor and you know, I have a guy I work with who does the editing and I would say, okay, well, I had to cough, so take that cough out, please. Mm-hmm. And then what would happen is that then you'd, then you'd say a sentence and you'd go, no, 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 I don't like that sentence or, or that sentence. Was wrong. You know, when you take out that cough, take out that sentence too. Right. And, and so slowly but surely, you begin to say, "Well, maybe I'm never, I'm never going back into talk radio. <laughs> what do I care about that talk radio muscle anymore? Right. Uh, just make that show sound good." Yeah. And so what, what we ended up doing is, I go in there. I read like 10,000 books, it seems like now. You, you know, before it was like if you go look at the show notes, we would do a show and there'd be like four books. Right. Um, usually I would pick a topic I already knew a lot about, uh-huh. read a, but now forget it. Even when I know a topic backwards and forwards, we're reading the latest histories on it. We're reading <laughs> conflicting. I mean, the one I'm start, I'm talking about now and I can't even tell you what it's about, but I've got 45 books sitting here on my floor Jesus. stacked up and I'm going, how do I even how do I finish these things before the, so long story short, um, read a ton of books, go into the booth, um, with an idea. I mean, uh, I craft the show, um, in order to bring out, I mean, you, you want to mix elements. I always compare it to making a rope, and a rope has several different strands, and you weave those strands together. Well, our strands are like drama, narrative. We have these things we call twists, which mm-hmm. are the sort of the Twilight Zone, Dan Carlin elements, for lack of a better word. Um, and, and we weave those together, and, and each show I try to make different enough so it doesn't sound like there's a formula. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of times people will say, well, you know, the latest show didn't grab me like this other show. And part of the reason why is because I don't want to grab you in the first five minutes in every show so that you go, aha, I know how this is going to go. He's going to do something wild in the first five minutes and blah, blah. You know, I don't want you to, to recognize any templates. Right. So so we switch it up. And, and, and so when I sit down and I plan these things, um, that's the part that gets planned. I try to sit here and go, okay, do we have a sort of a theme that makes sense or several themes we can string together? And then it becomes like jazz mm-hmm. where you've got a sort of a, a, a main sort of uh, theme running through it, but then I riff and improvise and, 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 and play around and then come back to that theme to anchor myself again before I then you know go off in the distance. So uh, Jimmy Page, the guitarist for Led <laughs> yeah, Zeppelin, used to, say, used to say that his, his the way he organized things was tight but loose <laughs> and that's the way we do the show it's I love that <laughs> I absolutely love that that's yeah, very... so that's the organization of the program so I go in there and I talk until I run out of gas and then when I go back in the booth I pick up from where I left off and then we string it all together and we take out the coughs and any mistakes and anything like that tight but loose very Taoist of Jimmy Payne yes. I like that 
<laughs> hey, Dan, I was listening to you get all excited about the destruction of our democracy and the insanity of our elected officials being in the pocket of every moneyed person in the world. Do you see any hope for that? Because I've been toying with the idea because I personally, whoever's running the Trader Joe's around the corner right now, regardless of their politics, I would rather that person be my representative right now than the, 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 the tubs of shit that we have in there right now that seem to do only for the corporations and nothing for the people, which to me is almost treason. Don't we need to get these bums out? Or at the very least, is money in politics one of the biggest problems we face right now? Or am I just overreacting? You know, I, I tend to, as, as I would, um, look at history for these things. And the problem when you try to look at history for similar situations to ours is that there are so few examples to draw from. Um, our system of government is not unique, but it's rare. And, and so that's why everybody likes to look at Rome is because there's Rome is one of the few examples you can look at. And truthfully, the Roman example from the Roman Republic in ancient times does in some superficial ways remind you a lot of what we're going through here. Um, so I think when you look at past examples, we look doomed. Um, but I think we have to remember that that's too small of a sample size, a, a historian would say, or a scientist would say. And also, I think we have to remember, and I talk about this in the podcast sometimes, that history, the gods of history, as I always like to call them, have a tendency to throw wild cards uh, sometimes. And I think we tend to assume that the courses we're on will remain stable and that the, the trends that we see today are going to play themselves out to their logical conclusions. If they do play themselves out to their logical conclusions, I tend to agree with you. I think we're just screwed and you know the, the way things are going are bad. But I think the 9-11 attacks is a perfect real-world example of how wild cards get thrown and directions get changed 180 degrees. And even as a young country as the United States is, we've had a lot of these game-changing moments, and sometimes they lead us down reform paths, and sometimes they lead us down disastrous paths. Um, so I, I think that I would never seal off hope on these things. I certainly think that the problem with our system right now is that the very people who would have to reform it are the ones who have benefited from the corruption and the problems. Mm -hmm, yep. So there's a little bit of the fox redesigning the chicken coop kind of thing going on here. Yeah. Um, but I would never write it off. I do think, and we talk about this in my podcast extensively, I think one of the mechanisms that keeps us from easily reforming things are the two political parties who are so entrenched in the way things are yeah, right. that they, ha they have no legitimate um, – incentive mm -hmm. to to foster change and in fact if you actually watch their day-to-day -day activities they do a pretty good job of ratcheting down the system and so we try in the podcast often unsuccessfully i think to uh... to to locate little points where maybe you can make inroads towards reform and i always end up coming back down to the really weird concept that as voters we can really change this thing, so it's simple on one hand, yeah. but the fact that none of us can even imagine that happening shows how you know it's both simple but impossible to imagine. So I do think that this is the kind of thing where you could have some giant scandal that could so incense people that maybe that they would go in a different direction. And if we simply voted differently for a while, you could get different people in office. Um, you know, in the last show I did, I think it was the last show, it all blends together, we talked about um, like almost like a Kickstarter campaign where you could say um, – 
public person A or businessman A or philanthropist A or philosopher A doesn't want to run for office, would never go through the kissing babies and the raising money and everything, but we will all pledge to vote for him if they'll run and if he gets 20 million votes pledged to him in this electoral Kickstarter campaign, then they'll run and serve. I mean, I'm starting to wonder if maybe some of the new tools that are still in its infancy, we have to remember, mm -hmm. um, for mass communication and crowdsourcing and societal connectivity won't give us some – I mean, imagine what the – reform generations in the past, say the 1960s generation, who used to pass around zines, you know, Do stuff that they Skype. would take, yeah, yeah, yeah. Xerox, to, and yeah. hand out stapled Xeroxes to each other. What would they have done with social networking? And so I feel like this, gen and I think this is why the government is scared of it, by the way. I think this is part of why you see so much spying and monitoring. I think they understand how potentially destabilizing all this is, but what they see as destabilizing is empowering if you're trying to figure out how to cut this Gordian knot that is the corruption in the governmental system in the U.S. right now. Yeah, in that sense, I remember when you did the whole uh, multi-part series on the Roman Republic, in many ways you were hitting the same spots minus the technology in terms of the very people who are benefiting from a system of Latifundia and everything else being the ones supposedly in charge of changing how the whole agricultural system in Italy lived and uh, the handling of the land and all of that. That didn't quite turn out the best possible way. So yes, there is uh, lots of fingers crossed here that uh, Skype will save us all. But <laughs> Well, listen, the danger of that episode mm -hmm. was that I would cherry pick the facts to sort of fit, you know, because if you go there, you could easily find things that look similar. And I was very conscious that I didn't want to, I didn't want to create a narrative that wasn't true just to make it look like our mm -hmm. country. But I remember thinking at the time, that the factions and the interests and the tensions that were pulling on their political system didn't just remind me of our system. It reminded me of every representative system I could no. think of. No. Um, and so you begin to ask whether or not that's not a constant and that when you get representative systems, you're going to have these various interests tugging and pulling at one another. I was fascinated by the um, – and not to get too into it uh, – the Grocky brothers mm -hmm. and how they so upset the system that of course they both had to be killed yep. but also but also that even down through the histories you could see the various factions either um, glorifying what the Grocky brothers did mm -hmm. uh, who, who were by the way they were probably social reformers back from Republican Rome but you also had you know almost like slamming their reputations from the grave, yep. other Roman writers who were talking about them being opportunistic politicians who simply were using you know, the defense of the poor to foster their own political ambitions. I mean, it was almost like you had the ancient Roman version of Fox and MSNBC <laughs> continuing to slam the other side from yep, the grave. Of course. You know? <laughs> That's exactly how it is. Yeah. And in that sense, we have one listener ask about how much does uh, the desire to draw parallels with modernity play in your choosing the topics for the episodes? Because, of course, that makes things more interesting. You know, when you can connect something that happened a thousand or two thousand years ago to today, it um, elicits more interest on the part of the listeners. Uh, how much is that a big deal for you when you are picking topics? Um, not just in terms of, oh, I want to get the audience into it, but for you, for yourself, how much is it fun for you? to draw those parallels or how much is sort of a secondary consideration when you pick topics? Well, 
the two podcasts are different that way because in the political one, I make no bones about any of that stuff. Sure. I mean, I think everybody we're very upfront about you know me and what what I believe and where mm-hmm. I'm trying to take you. And with the history one, I have to be honest, as a guy with a degree, but just a simple BA mm-hmm. in history, you know, you become very aware of historiography and how historians from the past used to use, you know, cherry picking facts and trying to create narratives. And, you know, you can you can write a book and have history, you know, history is a little like the Bible. You can you can take the bits and pieces mm-hmm. out and have have it say whatever you want it to say. Yep. And when when I first started doing this, I was very conscious of a couple of things. One, that I was not an official historian, and so I really wanted to make sure that I didn't create the narrative. Mm-hmm. And that's why you'll often hear me um, talk in the show about how different historians will disagree about something we're talking yeah, about. Of and I'll read you something one guy says and something another person says and allow you to compare and contrast them because one, I'm not officially qualified to do that, mm-hmm. and two... I, I don't want to. I don't want to be accused, and I don't want to be guilty of doing it subconsciously, of of creating the narrative for you, and then saying, "See, see, the Romans show us that this is right. exactly." And, and it would be very easy to do that, and yeah. I think it's a a standard temptation. But there's no question that sometimes I see a story, and I think like the last one we did, which was not my favorite show, but I think I say that about every show we just finished. <laughs> um, but 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 I uh, the last show we did was about the period, um, the very short period from about 1890 to 1910 in American mm-hmm. history where we flirted with outright colonialism. Right. And and the reason I thought it was interesting was to provide that context we talked about earlier, you know, that idea that you're born into the middle of a soap opera and without knowing about how you got here, none of it makes sense. I think if you understand that period in U.S. history, a lot of U.S. foreign policy begins to fall into place and you begin to have something to anchor it to in terms of understanding without me having to draw any conclusions. I mean, I I talked a little bit about the U.S. Uh, Philippine insurrection that happened in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and you wouldn't believe how many people emailed me and said, I had no idea we were even, that we were ever mm-hmm. in the Philippines. Yep. If you don't understand that, it's really hard to put – neoconservatism and all these movements in the United States now into context. So my point wasn't to give you a, a an outcome or mm-hmm. a conclusion, but to simply say, hey, here's what happened in the soap opera before you got to where we are now. You know, this is why so-and-so hates the other person. This is why this person's having sex with this other person. And I mean, give right. you a little bit of background so that you could say, okay, I guess I, I have some more context on this. And and that's what we try to do when we bring up stuff that's relatively recent. The, the far-flung past, obviously, you're not looking for but But the Roman show, I guess, dealt with a lot of parallels. But yeah. again, more systemic parallels yeah, than of course. else. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, going back to the mechanics of the podcast, uh, listener, I guess, puts some... Uh, there's some heavy pressure on this question because he said that the answer may restore his uh, faith in humanity. Oh, so boy. that's for you. <laughs> okay, there is a little heavy pressure. But uh, no, he's asking about the, um, you know, being, your ability to make a living with the podcast because he say, you know, Dan only has donations, audible.com. He sells some of the old episodes. There's not a whole lot beyond that. Uh, if. Uh, well, I was actually to find out that through just donation or selling all the episodes, he can make a living. That would make me feel good about human beings giving freely for something that's given to them for free. Um, so the ball is in your court. How does it work on that end? Well, and this is an interesting question. Um, 
because there are no metrics mm -hmm. yet for what we do, and you're going to understand this better than most of your listeners. Um, and again, I have to remind myself about this sometimes that 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 we there's about a hundred, I would say, podcasters who are out front right now, sort of establishing the rules and the the statistics and all this stuff that everyone else will be able to use to help make the you know if it's an algebra mm -hmm. equation we're we're defining what x is right now yep. so that down the road other people will be able to plug something in for x mm -hmm. um and one of the x's one of the metrics is can you make a living doing this um and, and how do you do it if you can and i talk and I'm sure you do too to other podcasters about their thoughts on this and how they do it. Um, you know, Joe Rogan and I talk about it sometimes. I'm aware of what Mark Maron's doing. Uh, sometimes Adam Carolla. I mean, uh, uh, um, it's Adam Curry. Uh, well. Sometimes we're we're talking by email. So I mean, I, I'm in touch with these people, and everybody has a different way sure. because there are no rules yet of of how to go about doing this. The way we do it on our show is I always compare it to a stool with several legs and mm -hmm. each leg represents a an income stream. Mm -hmm. um, one of the income streams, always the most important to us, was listener donations. So you have like a PBS model. Uh, another one which turned out to be uh, serendipitous. I mean, we didn't know it was coming. We didn't expect it and we feel a little bit like we depend on it more than we should is the mm -hmm. Amazon affiliate program. Yep. Amazon, if you buy books through someone's website, uh, we get a little piece of the action. We had no idea that that would ever turn out to be significant. Yep. Uh, but that's another leg of the stool. We also didn't expect that the old shows would sell uh, like they are. But the history show turns out to ra be rather timeless. It's rather like a book. Right. We, we don't sell a lot of the old political shows because they're dated, but, sure. the, but the history shows sell. Um, hmm. That's interesting because I, I was thinking, you know, maybe people are so spoiled by the fact that they get so many shows for free that they may not want to cough up the money for old stuff. But uh, but I guess they do. That's very nice. Well, and, and here's the way we always look at it. Uh, it also, I think, helps us against piracy. Is, is mm -hmm. we just try to sell them, sell them for so cheap yeah. that really don't have an excuse for them. You know, <laughs> I mean, if, you, if you're going to pay a buck twenty-five or something for a song on iTunes that lasts two minutes long, right. and we're going to give you a four-hour audio book for the for almost the same price, yeah. we hope that you'll say, <laughs> "We'll give Dan I mean, two bucks. I'd give two bucks to a bum on the street corner. I'll give right. two <laughs> bucks to Dan." Um, and so, and, and that seems to help. And I, I, the funny thing is, when you see the listeners out there protecting you from piracy like I'll go to YouTube sometimes and someone will have posted something of ours and our listeners will go there and ask YouTube to take it down for us because they get offended that somebody's stealing from a poor <laughs> podcaster you know, out there but but so the answer is is I I don't know I right. would say that the jury is still out I, I you know people will often say well how much do you make with this thing and the true answer is is that it is so different month to month yeah. that I I don't have a good answer and I'll tell you this when it's been a while since we've released a hardcore history show you can watch the money just dry right up yep and so when people say why don't you get out shows faster I have to try to tell them that I have every financial incentive in the world <laughs> to, to get shows yep. because the minute I do it. People start giving again. Yeah. So, but but if the quality declined, then you would threaten that on the other front. Of so course. the 
the answer is is that is that we're we're writing these rules as we go. That we all have different ideas about what it takes to live and raise a family and all that other stuff. I always say that the listeners are buying my mac and cheese for me, which is true. Um, and there are different ways to do this. I mean, Mark Maron has um, a paywall where if you become a member of his subscription service, once you're a member, you can access all his old stuff. Mm-hmm. That's one way to do it. Rogan puts it all out there for free, uh, but then does a bunch of ads. Mm-hmm. We sell the old shows individually. I mean, so so nobody's developed the foolproof system right now. We're sure. all in the experimental stage and trying to figure out, you know, how one does this. Um, I will say this: I am so unbelievable, and I, this isn't really kissing up at all. It, it, it literally, I I say prayers every <laughs> night, thankful that this is working. Because as a guy who was a radio guy, and radios become so awful yep. to work in that these people who who support these programs have given me a rewarding life yeah. and and you know when you when you see being able to pay for your kids back to school supplies and i mean i really feel this connection to this audience that that is I can't even describe it to you. I mean, I almost feel like I know them and 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 I owe them, and I hope that they're feeling like they're getting as much from me as I'm getting from them. It's a very strange feeling, but listen, if somebody gave you a job, you would feel a certain level of devotion to them. Mm-hmm. And these people have made allowed me to make a living of sorts, and so I'm I'm so extremely grateful. And of course, now what I worry about is sustainability. Of course, I mean, is this thing viable over the long term? Mm-hmm. I don't know. And how would anybody know? There hasn't been a long term, right? So, so once again, we're out front here trying to discover, um, you know, whether this thing can can sustain itself. No, and I mean you're right. That's very humbling when you get yes, uh, very emails humbling. from all over the world, and uh, you're like, "Wow, us talking really that has that impact on you." And and the cool thing about it is that whereas radio, you may get a humongous audience, but tend to be either regional or national at most. Um, the beauty of podcasting is that you really get people from all over the world, from the weird, and and it's it's amazing. It's there's something very cool about this globalization of uh, culture. Well, and you know what? I always tell people that I feel like I'm like one of those mimes or one of those people who, who plays the violin with an open instrument case on a street corner for money, but it's a really busy street <laughs> <Yeah>. corner. <laughs> and, and so I think that's kind of what's helped us a little bit. I'm, I'm, I'm a global street performer. Nice. Uh, but, but here's the thing, that, that when, when you think about that, and, and like you mentioned, I could do a radio show and I'd be on a bunch of stations here in the Pacific Northwest and I could talk about Iran. Mm-hmm. And if I made some fundamental mistake, there'd be like three Iranian expatriates who would know about it and contact me about it later. Now, if I talk about Iran, I'll get emails from Iran yep. saying, let me tell you where you're wrong about that, <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And so the pressure is definitely on. Oh, yeah. But it is. If if I got a job in radio in New York now, which I don't want and I wouldn't take, mm-hmm. it, it would be like a demotion. Yep. You know, um, yep. once you've had this global audience, you feel like you never want to go back to to like I had a buddy uh, who was talking to me the other day about the potential for him to get back on the radio in Portland, and he was saying, "Listen, the transmitter will reach all the way down to Albany, which is you know <laughs> an hour and a half drive." Right. And I said, "Really, man? I said, really? That's going to do it for you?" I said, "I can't go back to anything. I'm I'm spoiled." 
now. Yeah, I agree completely. That's a tool that's amazing. The fact that we can just drop something on iTunes and the next day. Notes uh, from New Zealand. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. Until the government shuts us down, it's a wonderful tool. Yep. Yeah, well, like that's that. definitely a danger. Hey, Dan, back in your, in, your, in your reporting days, what was the story that really shook you the most? Because I spent four years with a camera running around. And uh, it was one certain fire on a snowy night watching someone burn alive that the, they didn't arrive on time to help him because of silliness that just changed me forever. Did you have a moment like that anywhere in your early career? Well, are you talking about one that I covered or was involved in or or, or one that was um, – because, because I remember being intensely upset – and involved emotionally in the in the problems that the former Yugoslavia had when it was breaking up and all that stuff. But I didn't cover that story. I did. I did what was called. You'll probably know this term, localizing that story. Oh yeah. Where, now let's go yeah. to the bar and see that's if this, right, that's the right. Bosnian. Uh... That's exactly what we did. So I definitely localized that story, and I took real interest in that because that that one really bothered me. But in terms of things that I was actually out there dealing with, the story that that was the biggest story I was ever involved in, and I wasn't a reporter. Order. I was a. Uh, I was. I was. I guess you could call me the assi- part of the assignment desk support staff. Was the L.A. riots oh. um, because the station I, I was working for ABC at the time, and ABC is in a different location now than they were back then. But back then, the ABC station was located about a block and a half from from where the in the riots were like. If you think about a lake, and it would lap against certain parts of the city and I mean you could literally go to certain streets and the riots had like flames licked one side of the street and not crossed the street so one side would be devastated and the other side would be pristine and and basically the riots lapped against almost the edge of the news station and so we had all these passes where we could break curfew and actually go out and see, you know, as a lifetime Los Angeles resident, I had never seen my city with all the lights out. Um, So I'm driving down Sunset Boulevard at midnight. There are no lights because they were put out because we had National Guard units on every street corner and they didn't want to backlight them and silhouette them for snipers. So they turn out all the lights. There are no cars, if you can imagine that, in in L.A. And I'm driving around waving because every one of these guys on the street corner is waving to me. And it's just – it looks like the army is is in my, my hometown. It's completely dark and I'm the only car on the street. It was the most eerie feeling. For me, and then I remember the first day of the riots when I was trying to get to work, and the traffic jam was like a nuclear bomb had gone off, and I was on Hollywood Boulevard, and we didn't move for two and a half hours. I mean, my car didn't even inch. And I remember thinking, how would we ever get out of this city if it was something that was? But but I mean, so talk when you talk about having your psyche shaken, that that was psyche shaken. But you're right when you find bodies and murders and all that kind of stuff. each one of those stories has a lasting impact, but but for me, I'd never been quite as shaken as by the L.A. riots. I think that qualifies because it's definitely yeah. much more important than my Schlievovitz is not making it quite as quickly because of the trouble, you know, in, in, in Bosnia. That doesn't really have that local feel to it. That Then when you're living in the middle of it, then you're really like, wow, this is exactly how far we've fallen. Well, and I'll tell you, I, I felt a little guilty, and if you were in news, you'll understand this too, that sometimes we would not enjoy but get excited about a chance to cover a good story as opposed to some piece of junk story you're doing because mm-hmm. there's no news happening and i remember the first few days of the la riots were so exciting 
that you started thinking a little, you know, you're feeling a little guilty because there's people really getting hurt and property being destroyed and all this. And I remember feeling really guilty about it. And I remember my news director saying something to the effect of, don't worry, uh, life has a way of equalizing those feelings. And, and so I went home and I slept and then I went down to the dry cleaners to pick up my clothes. And the dry cleaners were right by the news station. And I walk into this dry cleaners and, you know, you're supposed to be observant as a journalist, and somehow I missed the fact that there are boards all over the windows of dry cleaner, <laughs> and I walk in, and there's not a stitch of clothing in the place, and I'm, I somehow missed that too, and I take my little ticket, and I hand it to the Korean guy uh, who's the dry cleaner. And to his credit, he actually looked at my ticket and pretended to consider the question. Oh, are, is this guy's clothes there? And then he hands it back to me and goes, no clothes. And I said, what? And he points to a sign on the wall and says, I'm sorry to say because of the L.A. riots, all the clothes were stolen. So I lost my best clothes in that. And I remember going back to the news director and he laughed and he said, see, it all equalizes out. <laughs> now you got you skin just, in the game. You just paid for the excitement that that story, the adrenaline rush you had because of that story has now been uh, paid for <laughs> personally. So everybody out there feel very guilty anytime you're excited about something. I, I just thought about the, the, the family walking around in my favorite pants somewhere around L.A. <laughs> That's funny, man. The, um, your uh, political podcast, Common Sense, how much um, is uh, the title? Did you take it from Thomas Paine or is it just more of um, like where does it come from? You know, so many people have asked me that question that it is tempting to say, absolutely, I was totally thinking of Thomas Paine. Yes, I, that's... <laughs> but, but the truth of the matter is, is that, is that um, I can honestly say that that's probably my, if you count the three radio shows I've done on politics in my life, that's the fourth one. Mm -hmm. And I didn't come up with the name for any of them. <laughs> and, 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 and unfortunately, the truth is I don't like the name of any of them. So that might say something. Hardcore History is the only one I actually came up with a name for. Right. So I had, a, I had a buddy who was working for Apple and who said to me um, before we came out with the podcast that now would be a good time because we'd been working on it. And he knew that iTunes was about to be released. And he said, now would be a good time to release that podcast you've been thinking of. And I played for him. You maybe call it the demo or mm -hmm. something like that. And I said, I have no idea what to call it. He says, well, sounds like common sense to me. Let's just call it common sense. And so we went with that. And then everybody was saying, oh, it's so brilliant of you to name it after the Thomas oh, Paine right. thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I wish I could claim credit for it, but I can't. I would say from now on, just say yes. From now, exactly. Yes, Com yes Thomas Paine that's is where exactly the name is. exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> One thing that's cool about both uh, you showed that in Common Sense as well as in Hardcore History is that you seem to have a very – nuance the worldview um like one thing that's cool about listening to your stuff is that it doesn't feel like you're trying to sell something to your listeners you're not trying to sell some pre-digested ideology with all the clear-cut conclusions with everything even politically there's not an exact label to define you uh you are you know republicans would agree with some things and be horrified with other stuff democrats would have the same libertarians would have the same there's something about your take that's just not cannot be caged, cannot be put in a box. And um, that in itself is, uh, I personally find it very liberating in terms of being a human being, not a representative of an ideology, which makes me trust you um, a lot more. Because again, I don't feel that you're going by a dogma that you have to defend no matter what, but more by just the way you call it as it is. In that sense, a listener asks you, um, where does dishonesty, you know, wh what kind of concrete actions would you like to see people take 
beside spreading awareness of certain issues. Because clearly, you know, anytime you are not affiliated with, a, certainly with an official party, but even with an official ideology, it becomes a little harder to uh, uh, mobilize people who would be just, you know, wear the same clothes, have the same badge on, and so they'll follow wherever you're going. You are just making appeal based on uh, people's sensitivity and logic and reasoning power and all of that. Where would you like things to go with um what kind of actions would you like to see your listeners take? Well, I want to say that that you saying that, and I hear this from the listeners too, is is so immensely satisfying to me on a personal level because you are saying that you are enjoying the very part of what I do that most got me in trouble with the radio people mm -hmm. um, because, I mean, th they used to say to me, and I'm not exaggerating at all, that a listener should be able to listen to me for three minutes and know exactly where I'm going to stand on every subject <laughs> and, 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 and that you need to be so cut and dried and so consistently one way or the other that 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 people don't have to sit around and think about what you're going to say. They, they have to know and you have to then reestablish re it all the time. And, and, and I would have – the last time I almost got into an actual physical altercation with another human being was a, a program director of mine that, that I would get off the air – and and the very things that you like about the program were the things he couldn't stand. None of them could stand. <laughs> right. Um, and, and so so when we talk about the new media and why this is valuable, um, I think, is because it allows us to drop what is essentially a shtick mm -hmm. and a game. And I mean, the truth, the the really dirty, nasty truth of all this stuff that the media shows you about people like, let's just take Rush Limbaugh as an example, because mm -hmm. he's the poster child. Right. Rush Limbaugh does not believe these things he's telling you. Right. And everyone in the business knows this, right? <laughs> but, but, and I think Rush Limbaugh has actually said privately to people that he's astounded that people think he does, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 yet, and yet people live or die based on this stuff. The truth of the matter is, is that I love that we can bring nuance and gray areas to the to the to the to the playing field because that's where most people live and that's where most subjects live. This idea that there is a single ideology or philosophy that is right and that you can follow and that will work for every problem is. I'm sorry, to me, is ridiculous. Right. Um, there are ideologies that have perhaps better answers for this question or that question. Mm -hmm. But I, 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 to me, it's, it, it's the equivalent of being close-minded. Yep. There's a wonderful line uh, from The Economist, uh, Keynes, who said somebody accused him of uh, – a reporter came up to him once and said, uh, you know, you, you, basically we would say today, you flip-flopped on this issue. How do you answer the charges that you flip-flopped? And he famously said – my dear sir, when the facts change, I change my opinion. What, <laughs> what pray tell do you do? <laughs> and, and, and that's how I've always felt that, you know, listen, I have very strong convictions about certain things, but I don't have this ideology that requires me to stay of the same opinion. Otherwise, I've sacrificed my whole, you know, I, I've screwed up my whole history with you. And you, you know, Dan Carlin is no longer, a, you know, fill in the blank. You know, he's no longer blah because he's mm -hmm. changed. I, I don't think that way. And, and I've had a lot of people say that that's the equivalent of having no convictions. But if convictions means that you're not allowed to rationally consider each issue on the merits – 
well, then I'd rather not have convictions. And I certainly have feelings of right and wrong, mm -hmm. but they're not political feelings of right or wrong. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Because it's, uh, it's the difference between living by a dogma and being able to make a judgment call ad hoc for that specific situation in that context, in that, which ultimately is what any self-respecting human being could and should do because it's about being aware of what is in front of your eyes as opposed to projecting onto reality some movie about you think and want and believe reality to be. So and there are several different things that come into play. Like some people will say everything needs to be considered from a rational perspective. Mm -hmm. And I would say that rationality has its place. Sure. But then other people will say, well, one of the things that are bad about these liberals is they're too emotional and they come at things from emotional reasons. But, but that comes into play too. And these things need to be, you know, we talked about the history show earlier, how I think about it like different strands of a rope being woven together. You have to weave all these things together in a way to get some sort of a three 60 perspective on deals if, if you if you examine every issue through an emotional prism or conversely a rational prism you're going to make classic mistakes um, because rationality does not answer I mean look at look at the situation we find the world in today look at the Arab Spring as a perfect example mm -hmm. if you try to examine that through the lens of rationality and I, I generally appreciate the lens of rationality, mm -hmm. except that when you're dealing with human nature, we're very often not rational. Yeah. And so you will you will be confounded by the emotionalism and the unpredictability of human beings and human nature. It's why these political systems that look so good in a classroom or on paper don't really work that well when you apply them to human societies because human beings are capricious. Mm -hmm. I mean, we just, we're not, we don't fit in these boxes. So you have to account for that too. And so when you talk about some sort of a political ideology that's going to fit in every circumstance, I deny that there is such a thing. No. And so if you feel that way, then you have to do a show where you focus on gray areas and nuance. You have to understand that you don't have all the answers. And I, I like to think that we turn that into a strength. That you that you that you you whip it around and you say you know what you can trust me when I say I'm confident about something because you know I have no problem telling you when I'm not exactly and that's to me you know not to be reintroducing labels from the back door but that's I guess what I like about Taoism that it's a known label you know it's exactly this notion is uh, applying an approach that leave you free to use reason where reason has a place, to use emotions where emotions have a place, to use whatever tool helps for that specific situation without having to uh, defend some abstract ideology every time, you know. It's Being... tight but loose then, right? Exactly. That's why I, I thought that uh, the Jimmy Page statement was perfect that way right there. It's like... Shall Your we? philosophy and worldview are tight but loose. Yeah. Maybe that's mine too. I love that. Yeah, there are a couple of quotes in regard to um, what you were just saying that um, fascinates me a lot that I like very much. One is by Nietzsche, uh, who said that the wisest man would be the one richest in contradictions, which I dig very much. And another one was Walt Whitman, who he asked, do I contradict myself? Very well, then. I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes which is not a hymn to schizophrenia or anything. It's acknowledging that there's more to life than one face. And there are more <clears throat> sensibility, talents, sides of yourself that come into play in different scenarios. And they have a place in the right context, in the right situation. 
that to me is uh, but i can understand why you know your old editors or some of the directors of programs would hate that because everybody likes stereotypes everybody likes labels well not everybody maybe but it's a typical thing it's like when you publish a book which section of the bookstore do we plug it under you know which heading where do we file it you know there's this desire to have things easily recognizable quickly for simplicity's sake which ultimately end up oversimplifying reality rather than just simplifying it which is a big big difference right there well they're but, trying to market you and they have yeah. to have they have to have a simple uh, marketing idea and and you know by the way i used both those quotes the nietzsche quote and the whitman quote um mm-hmm. uh and so i think that that's that those are points well taken but they're very hard to market aren't mm-hmm. they uh, and, and and i think that's where you you run into problems when you're dealing with the old media in air quotes is that they need easy billboard like ways to market their their products and saying He's into the gray and the nuance, just the way you like it. <laughs> does it really? Does it really tell you enough to get people to eat? And 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 what's more, you know, when I was on radio, you know, they they'd sandwich you amongst a lot of people who do fit into those little boxes. And so, you know, you'd have to have if you were going to do it right, you'd have to have a whole station where you had five talk show hosts who all deal with nothing but nuance and gray areas. And, yep. <laughs> so so I, I see their problem. At the same time, that's why I think the new media is better all the way around. Yeah, because it allows for a complexity of, uh, I mean, life itself is uh, simple yet not. You know, there's a, there's a degree of nuance that you're not going to have when you are living by stereotypes. And that just, and ultimately makes you even less trustworthy because if I know ahead of time what you're going to say about any given topic is because uh, you are going by the rule book. You're not going by you really thought about that specific situation considering all the possibilities. You're just going by the rule book, which really is, uh, defeats uh, the purpose of being an aware human being, in my mind. Well, and you know, there's there's something else that comes into it too. Um, we're you and I and all these podcasters, we're in the niche market business. We're we're narrow casters as opposed to broadcasters. Mm-hmm. And I get a lot of people saying to me, "Listen, if you you know, um, I was uh, I was doing some interviews a while back for some TV channels that were thinking that they wanted to maybe take the hardcore history idea mm-hmm. and utilize it in a TV sense, and we would have these meetings." And basically, they boil down to the same thing. How can you dumb this down? How can you how can you make it you know appealing to people who don't know anything and don't want to know anything? And eventually, I got up at the meeting and said, "You're creating a show I don't want to have any involvement in right. because because there's enough of that stuff out there. You don't need me for that." I said, yeah. "I said what are, my audience and 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 the internet and the podcasting allows me this this freedom. My audience are the people who feel left out by all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want the broad audience. I want the people who say they don't make anything for me anymore right. on television or the History Channel doesn't show any more history. Mm-hmm. That's okay. We right. do." Right, I'm not going to give you ghost hunting. I'm going to give you, and, and the fact that you can't get history from the History Channel just makes it that much uh, better for me. Yeah, it um, does. And, and I and, and we used to have we have a slogan. I have all these slogans I wrote for our big voice guy to say for the introduction to our show. And one of them, um, it's funny, but he, but he says if the show is too smart for you, it's not our fault. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and, and I, I don't want 
hate you if you can't keep up. There's another. There's a million shows for you if you're not into that. Uh, so, so we pretend we're an elite group, uh, and, and if you're listening, it's because you're not getting this elsewhere. We'll give it to you. Yep, yep, yep. No, absolutely. The Huffington Post ran like two days ago a exit exam from 1912 for eighth graders. I saw that. I saw Holy that. Holy shit! Huh? There, were, there were college sophomores that wouldn't have a prayer with this thing. And well, it really... and, 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 uh, and Daniele will be able to speak to that better than I, but, but there's always been this long-running idea that, that the education that high school people received back then was the equivalent of college educations now, and you could go all the way down the line. Yeah. And, and again, it, what's interesting to me is that we've come so far in terms of making education this specialty that is studied and more people have degrees in it than ever mm -hmm. before. It's become a science. So how how could we possibly be having such a diminishment of education outcomes when we're we've turned this into such a specific science. It seems counterintuitive that the results would be so much better in the old days. I've heard all sorts of theories about culture and kids coming ready to learn, but a lot of these people were living on farms. Right. You know, and I mean, they weren't exactly coming from Ivy League prep schools back no. then either. It's just, it's fascinating to me that, that those standards would diminish so much when we seem to have so many more resources and we're so much better versed and we study this stuff from an educational standpoint so much better. What explains that that Huffington Post story you talked about. Yeah, I know it's weird. I came, uh, I started doing college in the U.S., but I did uh, everything up until including high school in Italy. And you know, it's not that I like particularly Italian high school, but in terms of preparation, knowing how to study, know how to tackle the topics. By the time I got into college here, I was like, "Are you kidding me? This is a piece of cake." I mean, I was yeah. <laughs> a pretty decent student, but you know, nothing. Here, I was having like getting all A's. I was like, "Really? It's that easy? Wow!" I mean. Cool. Nice. I like it. <laughs> so, so it just makes your European education stand out that much more. Yeah, it? I was like, my God, that's I love. In the world it. of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Right? Basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly how. I found these Europeans have all sorts of crazy notions, Dan, including a six-week vacation. Oh yeah. Can you imagine such a thing? It's 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 it's, it's chaos. I I I have to tell you that 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 one of the great joys. I mean, if, if you wanted to talk about educating Americans and investing in something that I think would pay great dividends, I think you could almost take, you know, I mean, if you look at what we spend per student, you almost want to take some of that money and send every American to Europe for six weeks yeah. and let them be exposed to that because I feel like I feel like that traveling and not traveling, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm on a, a Pacific Carnival cruise and I'm off the coast and I'm eating hamburgers on the boat and I'm shopping at the shops. And the No, but when you really just hang out in some European cities for a while, I feel, you know, get kidnapped. I always like that in Europe, I would always get kidnapped by Europeans um, and, and live like they live for six or seven weeks. Uh, that to me broadens your horizon more than anything and takes away that provincial um, aspect to Americana that's so classic, you know, where um, where Americans, and, and I, I imagine this happens in a lot of countries, but by not being able to be exposed to the rest of the world. I mean, what was it, and, and I may be wrong about this, but did I read once that George W. Bush had never even been to Europe? 
by the time he became president. And you turn around and go, well, if that was true, that would explain a whole lot of things. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have a very provincial and always have in the United States uh, attitude that gets cured relatively quickly when you're exposed to other cultures and peoples. And the Europeans, I've always found, are so st- remarkably stimulating in so many ways. And and Americans, I think, benefit greatly from exposure to Europeans in general. I mean, going and and, and going to going to Germany, going to uh, France is always an experience. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, Italy um, and seeing. You know, Americans aren't Americans. I mean, most of us are not from here four sure. or five, six generations ago. There's really something with connecting yourself to the roots of your family's history and everything that is so freaking valuable. I would sacrifice both a semester in high school or junior high school and the cost that society pays for that to send these kids abroad and let them be exposed to other realities. I think that would be as valuable as, as a semester of their education. I think I used it on the podcast before, but I remember this one instance where I met a guy out here in California and he was like, oh man, you're from Italy? That's awesome. I was just in, Sp- in Paris a month ago. And I was like, I look at him and I'm like, time <laughs> again? What the fuck? <laughs> you know, really? <laughs> I was just in Paris a month ago. You're from Italy? I was like, wow. You know, but then having said that, it's also the other way around is true. You know, there's... Uh, there are a lot of people I know from Europe who could very much use a trip, uh, you know, anywhere really. Because one of the beautiful things about traveling is that anywhere you go, you pick up something. But definitely, you know, it goes to waste. There's uh, quite a few people that I know that would benefit tremendously from just hanging out in the U.S. for a while. Not because uh, here is uh, everything is great here, far from it. You know, in some things, it makes you appreciate what you have. And in some things, it does give you something that you can't even dream of in Europe. So I think it's like, you know, we always have the illusion that somewhere out there, everything is great and wonderful. And it's not really, I mean, some places are clearly more pleasant than others. But the reality is that there are special talents, special niches that are more developed in some place than others. And so the more you visit them, the more you can connect with these different tools, acquire them and then make them part of yourself. I think that's also why traveling has always been considered uh, a good supplement to anyone's education. Mm-hmm. And, and listen, it's a, it's a huge luxury because I know we're talking to a lot of people that are thinking to themselves, I'd love to travel. <laughs> How Where's can I afford money? that? Yeah. I can hardly put food on the table. But, but in terms of of in a perfect world, we would all benefit from getting around more. I think mm-hmm. you're right. I think I think Europeans. Listen, I think it would be useful um, to bring more Muslims from the Muslim part of the world who never get out here. Also, mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure the Homeland Security Department is thrilled <laughs> with 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 ideas like that. But but I but I've always thought that that it's easier to understand people in foreign cultures uh, if you get up close with them. Mm-hmm. And 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 again to bring it back full circle to what you had said about one of the great things about podcasting is that we're now broadcasting all of us to an audience that contains all these people. Mm-hmm. And it's it it's it talk about breaking down barriers. I interviewed James Burke, the wonderful host of the Connection series and all that a while back, and he was theorizing, he's a science historian. He was theorizing that the very things that used to make us coalesce into countries, you know, these shared histories and values and the, the advantages of size into countries could eventually be replaced by people who share attitudes 
and worldviews and outlooks and, and, and things like that so that you could have virtual communities and virtual countries that could consist of people all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have people who like hardcore history and common sense from all over the world. So there's something that ties us all together, even with all of our cultural differences, religious differences, worldviews, politics, all these kind of things. So, I mean, I find that, that some of those benefits we were talking about, about people with travel, might happen sort of by osmosis just because we're all communicating with each other more. Yeah, it can't possibly hurt that somebody from across the world hears a voice that makes a little more sense to them of a place that they may even been afraid of. You know, we like to refer to the unnamed like-minded, you know, the folks that are digging all these shows that are kind of exposing to, to ideas they never had. I mean, one of my favorite notions is I did a movie about Richard Clark a few years back, and I don't know a lot of people that know that the night of 9-11, there were 150,000 people in Tehran holding a candlelight vigil for us. And that's something that wasn't publicized, but that was our Muslim friends, you know, concerned about the well-being of humanity. And here we are, you know, wanting to bomb them every three days. It just seems like madness. Well, I'll, I'll take it a step farther when you talk about how there are countries, repressive regimes, that understand intrinsically, because their antenna are finely tuned towards threats to them, are intrinsically understanding how dangerous this communication between people all over the world is. Iran is working, as I'm sure you guys know, on their own internet that allows them to sort of bypass the rest of the world and keep everything safe. But, and I've confirmed this, I used to say this um, thinking, because people would tell me, you know, Dan, we can't get common sense in China. Hmm. And every time I say that, somebody will say, I'm in China and I can get it right now. And then five other people say, well, I can't get it. So I can confirm that many people in China, let's put it that way, can't get our show because the government in China doesn't like it. And you can understand why. Um, Programs like that provide what we were saying, a benefit to bring us all together and teach us we have all these things in common. But there are governments that don't want that. Um, so, So I find it both encouraging and interesting that the very programs that we like to think are bringing us all together and making us understand one another more are threats to those very governments who don't want to see that happen. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the team we want to be on, though, isn't it? Because I know one of our favorite person is old Tank Man from Tiananmen Square, and yeah. uh, they can't even Google anything about him in China. And it's, you know, it's Cisco and people like that that are, are helping him make that the case. Well, I'm not convinced um, that we're not going that route slowly but surely not as sure well. We I, I certainly know that our government and our media corporations, and remember they work together because those media corporations provide money to the campaigns of politicians who write these laws. Both the government and the major media outlets have a, a shared interest in as much as they can – controlling the internet more and you can say it's for copyright reasons which is what they'll often say but it's also because once upon a time the major media companies were gatekeepers and they're not gatekeepers anymore and when you're a gatekeeper I mean I always like to throw this statistic out there because it still blows me away in 1990 the Golden Girls. You remember that TV series? This is a, a very mediocre not super popular TV series was getting 40 million people watching it. Yeah. Um, 
Today, 40 million people is a number you only hit when you're watching the Super Bowl or other major um, media events. And the reason why is because of the fragmentation of modern media. We all have so many other things to watch that very few people watch a single program like that. There are a lot of people in media who would love it if you could figure out a way to return to the days when they controlled access to such a degree that they could guarantee 15, 20, 30 million viewers for mediocre programming. Um, so if you come to them with ideas for ways to I, – I said on Rogan's show, and I don't think, uh, I don't think he agreed with me, but, but there are people looking to see if you can create a, another internet, an internet for professionals – um, I mean, I think one of the things I like about the way Apple and iTunes has handled podcasting is they didn't separate professional from non-professional podcasts. Mm -hmm. They mix our stuff in with ESPN's stuff and PBS's stuff, and I've always thought that was part of the genius. But I can guarantee you that there's people at the major media outlets who would love to have that separation occur and then be able to buy all the advertising for the pro stuff, make the pro stuff download faster mm -hmm. as a way of different, you know, taking away the, the, the ability of us to mm -hmm. compete because they used to have an advantage and a club and, and, and they don't have that anymore. And I think that they're, they would love to find a way if they could to reestablish that. And I think the government would love if they could to corral some of the, of the wild west elements of the internet that are still out there um, into something more organized and controllable. And I think you see that with all these Snowden um, allegations and everything else. I mean, I think we're dangerous in some government's eyes and may maybe one of those governments is ours. <laughs> no, and I'm pretty sure that there are people right now whose income is based on figuring out the answer to what exactly what you're saying. How can we get back the old audiences? How can we gain the power back again? You know, because uh, internet has changed everything. That's a fact. And, well, and uh, if you look at the history of media, mm -hmm. um, there have always been gatekeepers. I mean, if you wrote a play and you wanted your play to be uh, played on the Greek stage, some mm -hmm. guy owned that stage and controlled access. Yep. Uh, in radio, somebody owned the transmitter. In television, there was some director who had to hire you and decide you should get the chance to show mm -hmm. the audience your work to decide if they want it. And there are times in history when new technology arrives. People don't know this, but when radio first appeared, there was about a 10-year period where it was wide open. Right. You could strap one to your back, a transmitter, and walk around a place like New York and reach three to five miles and do whatever you wanted to. Mm -hmm. And eventually the government shut all that down and and forced it into licensing. And you know, they were talking about, well, your signal will cross over these people's signal, and so you had to you know, buy access and they they clamped down again. And so there have been periods that are similar to where we've been with the internet, and in all the previous periods, they have managed to reclamp down. Down. Now, the internet is so much more wide open and so much more global that it's a much bigger task. But as history has shown, there are people who would love to figure out a way to put that genie back in the bottle if they could because it means dollars and cents and control of the message. And, I mean, you heard Dianne Feinstein the other day say that the First Amendment freedom of the press should not apply to bloggers and podcasters and people who are not paid mm. and salaried journalists. Well, that's, again, wow. an attempt to say that there is a club that is approved and then there's all these people who are not approved and, and the Internet has created – a, 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 a system where we're, we're all mixed together now and there is no club and she's basically saying we want to reestablish that club. And so I, I think that there are attempts on a wide variety of fronts to reestablish this 
there's media, and then there's a bunch of amateurs running around with their little hobby. Wow. This is Diane Feinstein? Yes. Wow. Uh, Democratic Jesus. senator from California. Lovely. Truly lovely. Wow. That's, yeah, that's disturbing, to say the least. Well, and how about disturbing from the fact that if you actually think about freedom of the press, when that right was guaranteed in 1787, who were the accredited reporters and what were the accredited news right. outlets in 1787? Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> uh, ridiculous. That's completely ridiculous. Well, speaking of weird and disturbing and political, um, I remember you mentioning a few times on your podcasts um, how you like boxing and how you know you have heard all the calls for the elimination of boxing because of the brain damage that people take same thing in many ways can be said about football you know the amount of hits concussions and hits that people take to the head and uh, the same debate exploded big time when ufc first came onto the scene with mccain you know john mccain calling for a ban on the ultimate fighting championship and uh, you know a whole other series of politicians jumping on the bandwagon and being horrified by the idea that consenting adults could uh, fight in uh, this few rules of martial art competitions there seems to be a weird dynamic there between on one end our lip service that we pay to individual freedoms and on the other end is desire to regulate morality which i mean we can apply to so many things from the war on drugs to prostitution to you know euthanasia you name it but that example is a bizarre one because when it comes to sports and the entertainment and and yet at the same time it's not a completely crazy one where the answer is obviously 100 percent one side because as you said uh in boxing you do have that moment where you are enjoying the fights you are enjoying the beauty the art that's behind it and at the same time you are taking into consideration that somebody's taking some serious damage to their head in the process um you want to run with it well, yeah, you have hit me where I live, I think, a little bit. And I think, I, think, I think bringing up football, the funny thing is boxing has declined in popularity mm-hmm. so much that most people have no problem simply saying, oh, my God, boxing's barbaric, you know, they should ban it or this, that, or the other thing. And then you bring up something like football, American football, mm-hmm. which is so unbelievably popular that people just, you know, it knocks the wind out of them. But here's, here's what I can throw out there that I find fascinating, and that's that – you know, I have um, an 11-year-old and an 8-year-old girl, mm-hmm. um, but obviously we, we hang out with a lot of parents who have boys, and, and this is the age where they start to play tackle football in an organized sense with pads and helmets and all that. And it is fascinating, the debates we have over the table about will you or won't you let your son play football based on what we know now. Mm-hmm. And and 10 years ago, those conversations would not have happened. Of um, in terms of see, and this is where this is where the question of freedom and the, the 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 right to decide for yourself about whether or not you're willing to take the damage that something like football will give you or boxing would give you, when you start doing it when you're a child, it's still the parent's job to yep. make that determination because most of these kids, I mean, you do very few people, very few people. Uh, over the age of 18, decide that they're going to play football when they haven't played football before sure. in an organized sense. Yeah. So these these decisions are made at the child level. And, mm-hmm. and, and as a parent, all of a sudden, I mean, look, um, every boxer, I, I, I interviewed boxers um, from time to time, and they're fascinating people, by the way. I mean, I think there's a lot of stereotypes in, in that too. But, yeah. but talking to boxers, the number of boxers who would be willing to let their child box – 
is minuscule, which I find <laughs> which I find so fascinating. Right. You know, none of them want their children to box, and and, and yet they want to box, or or they feel like they need to box, or whatever. Um, this, and you're hearing this with football too. I saw some football players interviewed, and they, they were asked the question, "Would you let your kid play football?" And several of them said no, mm-hmm. knowing what we know now. I find that to be maybe the most telling question. Um, but in terms of, of us, the audience, and the vicarious uh, enjoyment we get out of watching people do things that might hurt them, um, let me take it out of the realm. You know, let's let's do a little Dan Carlin mm-hmm. weirdness here and take it out of the realm and say, what if you could make a YouTube video of somebody deciding they were going to shoot up heroin mm-hmm. and the heroin might be too much heroin you know mm-hmm. like like okay the the it's somewhere in the oh no something really bad could happen with this amount of heroin uh how many people will watch my youtube uh, of me shooting up a potentially <laughs> fatal amount of heroin but you never know right um and 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 i i think i think these especially with boxing the never know factor was always such a big part of boxing and not the never know maybe this guy will die factor but mm-hmm. that has happened in boxing sure. but I used to say that what made boxing such an interesting sport is you could turn it on and it could be over now in one second. Yep. I mean, boxing can end at any moment. There is no time yep. limit. You can't go to. I mean, I had a friend go to the bathroom right before George Foreman knocked out Michael Moore. I mean, right. we watched a whole boring fight, and then the the most incredible moment maybe in, in boxing history happens, and the guy was in the bathroom for two seconds and it missed it. Yep. I mean, that doesn't happen in any other no. sport practically. Um, that's what makes boxing fun. That and 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 the the little nuances like every other sport out there they get really interesting once you understand all the little intricacies but like you know the nascar fan who says i don't watch nascar for the accidents and everybody goes sure you don't watch right. nascar but they really don't right but the accidents happen and then they weigh on people and i think i think you get into these moral quandaries because i'm actually a very non i'm a, a military history major who's a very non-violent guy <laughs> and i don't want to watch people get hurt it's a byproduct of what I like to watch. And right. yet, I think you get into these moral quandaries where you ask yourself, is the entertainment value I'm getting worth what I'm seeing on the field? And then we go to where you just asked, which is, well, what if that's what these people want to do? Mm-hmm. What if that's what they enjoy? I don't know the answer to those questions. Um, especially when you throw into the fact, especially with boxing, a lot of these people were boxing because it was the only way they could get up in the world. If you look at the... Uh, there was a fascinating study once on the various uh, ethnic groups mm-hmm. that would dominate boxing during certain periods of time. And it turns out that these ethnic groups are the ones that are generally the most recent newcomers to yep. the country. So, for example, when, when Irish folks were yep. were uh, uh, a despised minority, they were also huge in boxing. Mm-hmm. Italians, too. Jews, which most people don't know about, yep. were huge in boxing in the 1920s and 1930s. But then once people become a little bit more uh, wealthy and established, they stop letting their kids box. Their kids go to college. They become educators and doctors and lawyers. Uh, Unfortunately, African Americans have always had a pool of poor people that that find boxing as a way out. So in one sense, you say, well, these poor people have no chance. I mean, this is they're forced into boxing because of economic realities. And you say, well, we shouldn't we shouldn't uh, uh, we shouldn't get enjoyment out of their pain and suffering and yet at the same time if you close that avenue to them isn't that the same as saying you don't get to you don't get to make a living boxing now you don't get to raise yourself out of poverty boxing mike tyson made hundreds of millions of dollars Mm -hmm. how else was mike tyson going to make hundreds of millions of dollars 
And and should Mike Tyson be the one that decides that or someone else? Exactly. He lost it too, which I find fascinating. Right. Yeah, which yeah. is often the case. No, but exactly. And that's the part of the point is who's to decide? You know, are you going to decide for them? And if you are that concerned, well, then worry about fixing the uh, socioeconomic inequality rather than just saying you can't do this thing that I don't approve of. Well, and maybe what we should do is have some sort of a system where if Mike Tyson's going to make hundreds of millions of dollars, he's forced to put into a medical fund for his old age if he has dementia. Right. Uh, also, maybe you're required to take 5% out and, and, and save it for a rainy day. I don't mm-hmm. know. But in terms of the basic point, should he or shouldn't be, he be allowed to box, wouldn't you be angry if you were Mike Tyson and you were good at that and you could make a living and someone said you can't do that, you have to go work at you know flipping hamburgers at a restaurant instead? I think I'd be pretty mad. Of course. And even, even if you're not Mike Tyson who's making the millions of dollars, even if you're a guy who just love it and love the sport and maybe you make a living, maybe you don't, maybe you are a good amateur, but you know, it's like there are many, many reasons in addition to the money why people do it and just closing that venue because uh, you don't think it's desirable. I mean, in many ways, it fits the pattern that we have about so many other things, whether it is about drugs, prostitution, euthanasia. You know, the, the list of these things is extremely long, and the sporting example fit in that one. But, uh, I mean, really, when you remember the whole debate that there was about Ultimate Fighting Championship and mixed martial arts being banned for a very long time, in, they still are in some states. And uh, that's an interesting thing right there to see like this super profitable thing that, you know, that's the economic aspect, but then something that many people truly love to participate and jump into. And it's no, we don't approve of it because it's uh, violent. And he's like, well, you're not the one getting punched. So how about you let me decide? And uh, there's uh, it's, it's really interesting. Now, at the same time, you can see how that's a slippery slope because you can also argue well, in that case, uh, since it's an individual choice and as long as it's your individual choice, you should be free to do whatever you want, why not build a good old-fashioned arena and bring back gladiatorial games? Because, you know, I really dig having a gladius in my hand and going against some other dude with an... It's like, clearly there are there's a line somewhere in there, but it's not entirely clear where that is. Well, and like I said, there's there's a bit of a... I certainly would not disagree with you about the rights of the individual. I mean, if, if, who knows where your gifts are in life, right? And if if you if 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 one of the gifts you have in life is to be good as a boxer or a football player or any of these things, I think it's almost criminal to say you can't use your gifts to your own benefit. You have to squeeze into a box where maybe I'm gifted, but you're not. Mm-hmm. And I think that's wrong. The the question that I think is more interesting, and I ask myself sometimes, is. Can I morally and ethically, you know, if that boxer wants to do it, that's one thing, but I don't have to watch. Right. And if I'm watching, knowing that person is getting hurt, what does that say about me? Mm-hmm. And I ask that, and, and here's the funny part, I ask that while I'm watching classic fights on YouTube. <laughs> so, 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 so I have the ability to examine my own ethics and morals while I'm potentially violating them. Um, so, 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 I mean, it's one thing to be the person on the end where he's saying, listen, this is what I want to do, I make a living, this is the best thing, I mean, whatever. It's another thing to say, hey man, I love watching what you do. And, right. Wow, that punch you took to the head last week, that's gotta hurt. You know, that just, <laughs> It's, I think I think from a vicarious, it's one thing to be the gladiator and want to go in there and fight. It's another thing to say, I'm going to go watch another gladiator bout because I love the way that guy got cut open last week. It's, it's a whole different thing. 
<laughs> yeah, no, I, I see that. Not too many movies are positive about gladiatorial audiences as much as they may be about the gladiators themselves, that's for uh, sure. Quentin Tarantino could make a good one. I'm sure, well, Quentin Tarantino could do anything, so it's, uh, that's, uh, that's a fact. Now, a couple of listener questions before we close and let you go. Um, one quick thing in, um, well, I don't know if it's quick, but somebody asked about your historical heroes. Who are some of your historical figures that you dig the most? Heroes is the wrong word. Dig the most <laughs> is much better. Um, because, you know, in the same way we were talking about nuance and gray areas, the more you study any of these people, you, you, all that nuance. I mean, I love the fact that the more information you can get from these people, the more human they become with mm-hmm. all their fu- – and that makes them more attractive too in another sense. I'm fascinated by some of these – I mean, I don't know. I, I simply cannot fathom how somebody could study someone like Alexander the Great to a decent degree and not be fascinated. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a re- that's the reason that the guy is still so fascinating even to this day. The Romans were fascinated by them. The Greeks often loathed him and yet were fascinated by him. Uh, uh, Victorian English. I mean, it, it, different people throughout different periods in history have looked at this guy and said, this is the most amazing or one of the most amazing stories. And this guy is so nuanced and, you know, again, from what we know about him, he talk about somebody who's had his life story cherry-picked by historians over mm-hmm. the years. Um, but to me, that's a character that I could read or, I mean, we have yet to do the definitive Alexander the Great hardcore history show. We did one on the funeral games, the scramble for power after he died. Mm-hmm. But I'm so, there's certain topics that I've been saving for, okay, you know, you really want a good one, okay, here's your four-part Alexander the Great show, and we're going to really give you a good one of those down the road, because this is a, a, an absolutely compelling, fascinating, multifaceted, argued-about person with so many sides, and I, w- I would argue today that he is still as little understood as ever, because everyone has this guy like a mirror, and, mm-hmm. and he reflects your own you know, I have one book that basically says he's a dangerous drunk. Mm-hmm. I have another book that says he's like Charles Manson in Greek armor. I have another one that turns him into like a philosopher. Well, a lot of them, a philosopher king. Mm-hmm. You know, he might as well be like Diogenes with spurs or something. I mean, you know, is he homosexual or is he not? Is I mean, there's so many yeah. angles to this guy that are, right. I mean, a dangerous alcoholic Charles Mansonite homosexual philosopher. I mean, you start mixing yeah. all of these nuances, and he becomes this fantastic movie character. That's why Oliver Stone made me so angry by being the one who decided to do the movie about him, yeah. because um, and I think I might have said this on another show too, but but because there was another movie in production that got shut down uh. once. And, and, and it was Martin Scorsese was going to do And I've always thought that Alexander's Macedonians reminded me of like a mafia crime family. Mm-hmm. And so I thought if you're going to do a mafia crime family story, have Martin Scorsese do it. Yeah. You know, have Joe Pesci be one of Alexander the Great's generals. <laughs> you, know, you Persians, you know, you don't know what you're doing. You could even make it funny at times because I feel like that's how it was. You know, yeah. the same way Quentin Tarantino can mix murderous bloodshed with certain outrageous comedic ec- ec- yep. episodes, I mean, there's Alexander's got all this. So from a from a standpoint of a guy who likes to tell historical stories, Alexander's like 
your favorite character. I mean, you just you can't go wrong with him. I, I couldn't screw up that show. You know what I mean? Right. No, and I get, I mean, some historical characters that are just larger than life and fascinating, for sure. At the same time, there's a difference between those guys that you want to read on because of their meaty qualities, but you may not exactly want to have dinner with and the ones that you relate to in a way that, you know, they may not be perfect because no one is, they may not be, but they are, in that sense, your heroes as somebody that not only fascinate you, but you take a strong liking to. Um, mm. Does that figure or for you? Like, is that something that happens for you or you're more into purely sort of this fascination for the complexity of the character without uh, necessarily drawing a personal connection to them? Well, I, I think I've been personally burned. Mm-hmm. by the hero worship thing um, mm-hmm. as, as a kid growing up because I would get into this or that historical figure and you know you'd be I, I've been into history since I was a little kid so you'd be eight nine ten years mm-hmm. old and I would go through a year where I'm just intensely interested and hero worship is not too strong of a term sure. of this or that historical character only to get older and and again you flesh out this character and they become a lot less worthy <laughs> of your hero worship and so i think that helps create this more i'll give you a perfect example i've mm-hmm. um, always always been a fan of native americans uh, especially the apache tribe in uh, and we did a show on the apache uh, histories from arizona new mexico northern mexico but the apaches are a terribly nuanced group of people mm-hmm. um, in one sense it is so easy to um, to relate to what they were going through and 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 imagine yourself in a similar circumstance and how wronged they were and, and this and that and the other thing. And yet at the same time, if you're a white settler living near Apache country <laughs> when I mean yeah. it's you gotta be able to relate to that too. Right. And so and so I think that, that that's what starts to happen as you read more and more history. And I think that's what we tried to do again, if you look at the show we did on the atomic bombing Will you try to understand how there are different perspectives to mm-hmm. history? And one person in, you know, the Persians see Alexander the Great very differently than the people in Bulgaria who consider Alexander to be, yeah, or, or, or uh, the former Yugoslavian Republic of Macedonia. And, um, no, you know, and, the- and I mean, that's very, it makes perfect sense what you're saying, and you're right, and it's objectively true. At the same time, isn't there not a like, um, sympathy level that catches you despite you knowing better for certain historical characters versus others, or you have really transcended that completely by now? Oh, I still am. It's it's very dangerous to have me start to talk about someone like (laughs) Churchill or something because – and the funny thing is is Winston Churchill is exactly the kind of politician that if he were an American politician today – I would be railing against on my program all the time. Right. I remember I had a a, a liberal – German history teacher who said, what is it about liberals, meaning himself, uh, and people who think about themselves as so nice and peaceful, who, who admire all these conservative, you know, strong lion of the you know, Senate warmonger types, but there's something about, you know, when you read the Churchill quotes and he has all these witty things, he says, Kennedy's the same way. I think humor, John Kennedy, I think the humor of some of these guys is so disarming sometimes that you find yourself I mean a guy like John Kennedy was such a charmer mm-hmm. and he can charm a person like yours truly from the grave I mean you watch these press conferences and you see his 
unbelievably, I mean, he could be a member of like Monty Python or something like with these wonderful, or Peter Cook with these wonderful, off-the-cuff, humorous, deep, ironic, wonderful answers. And you find yourself enamored of the guy without considering any of the nuance and any sure. of the other questions. I mean, it's like my mother said that her generation was just completely taken with how good-looking he was, and you totally forget all the other stuff. Sure. I, I think I'm just as susceptible to that as anyone else, but I think, as I said, having been burned in my life with that sort of hero worship, I try to take, like, we did a show on <laughs> Churchill once, and I said, I think at the beginning, that you're not going to get a really even-handed view because right. I'm you know, you, you find yourself falling under the romance and the sway of these individuals the same way people in their own time period did. I mean, in that sense, it's the same way you relate to people on the street because, you know, there are going to be some people on the street that you fall in love with, that you are become great friends with that. And they may not be the perfect person. There may be some parts of them that you're downright horrified by, but there's something about them that captivates you. I've got so, family members like that. <laughs> so in that sense, it's not about, you know, objectively, are we saying they are objectively the perfect humans? No. But uh, are do they catch you? And, you know, that's, I guess, the difference right there. But speaking of Kennedy, not to go down uh, conspiracy theory too far, but just I'm curious about your take on the Kennedy assassination. There are like seven zillion theories out there. Nobody, of course, knows for a fact what happened. Everybody has a theory. Uh, what's your take on it? You know what's interesting? I, I tell you what's interesting is is sometimes reading what people say about me online because I, I, I've, I've said a few times that I'm I, – I, once upon a time I was belie a believer in the Kennedy assassination conspiracy things and now I'm not. And everybody now when they talk about me online will say things like I'm a skeptic. I don't believe in any conspiracy theories and all these sorts of things, which is so interesting because I think I was such a different person uh, years ago. But I think it's because – of me changing on the Kennedy assassination that people say that the Kennedy assassination to me mm -hmm. is a wonderful example of of the whole way conspiracies can grow and morph and and feed on themselves there are several books and every time i say that this is a good book people write me and say that's a piece of trash <laughs> so so they'll take it with a granite but one was written by a guy who i don't know named Gerald Posner um, another one was written by a guy i do know named Vincent Bogliosi who was the the Manson prosecutor, mm -hmm. and both of these books were written really with the Kennedy assassination buffs, as they're called, in mind. They're not for general readership. They're for people who are very familiar with all the different conspiracy books out there because they literally write in shorthand. They'll say, you know, when this author says this, and they expect you to know what these conspiracy authors have said. So they're really written to this small, well, small, but segment of the audience that's really into the Kennedy assassination. And both of those books do a very good job, in my mind, pointing out the stuff that has been left out of the conspiracy books. You know, we talked about cherry-picking history earlier. There is stuff that, if it doesn't agree with the author's theory, are, are simply conveniently not included in the book. Mm -hmm. And so you'll have a book like Vincent Bogliosi's book on uh, on the Kennedy assassination, which is exhaustive. I mean, it's not interesting reading. It's it's. It's a case. I mean, he's trying this case, basically. But he's going through every single point. And you begin to see where all of these books that you've read on the Kennedy conspiracies have left out important, relevant information. 
you know, only including the stuff that seems to, 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 to prompt the conspiracy stuff and leaving out the stuff that would seem to make you go, well, wait a minute, Occam's razor would indicate that. Mm-hmm. And, and, after, and believe me, I probably read, just guessing here, in my life, 75 books on the Kennedy assassination. Jesus Christ. And, 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 with, and with that, I mean, really, I was really into this for a long time. Right. With that, and, 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 and for yours truly to essentially do a 180 on this and change my mind based on – because, see, I think part of the problem here, and here's how I've always viewed it. The Kennedy assassination, there were legitimate reasons for the government to hide stuff. The legitimate reasons were if an assassin – who was enamored with Cuba and who could be tied to Cuba a year and a half after the Bay of Pigs at a time when the two countries almost came to nuclear war with each other can be convicted of shooting and killing a popular young president and family man. What is that going to do to the country? I mean, how is that going to force the hand of the next president? I really think there was a cover-up, but that the cover-up was done because there were really dangerous i mean oswald could easily be tied to castro and easily be tied to communism at a time when i mean look we all know that the first world war breaks out because a serbian terrorist for lack of a better word shoots the austrian archduke okay mm-hmm. what if a castro sympathizing communist former you know russian citizen defector guy kills kennedy do you have I, I mean right uh, yeah and so i mean that became because i think a lot of conspiracy people me included were using all the problems with the warren commission report and the obvious cover ups as evidence to show well there must be a conspiracy not quite totally grasping that there were legitimate reasons why that might have been an okay thing to do at the time. Mm-hmm. And, and that sort of changes your view right there. And then you start to read about all the stuff that the conspiracy theorists leave out about Oswald taking shots at U.S. generals before he, he went after Kennedy. Mm-hmm. I mean, Kennedy was not the first U.S. official that Oswald tried to kill. Right. And so the, all, you start reading these things, you go, wait a minute, Oswald does start looking more like an assassin. Mm-hmm. And if you're president of the United States, you start seeing reasons why you don't want to tell Americans that this guy's really tied to Cuba. Right. And really, you know, so I think those two books, Case Closed by Posner and the Bugliosi book, helped flesh out the entire situation and make it easier for you to go. And, and, and both of them, by the way, brought up an interesting point, which is Americans, no one wants to think that one stupid loser individual can have that kind of power in the modern world. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's unnerving right. that one guy like Oswald could kill the president of the United States and change history like that. Maybe you could look at it as empowering too, but what if Archduke <laughs> what if Archduke Ferdinand doesn't get killed by right. you know the guy in Sarajevo? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. Well then we don't wanna you're already given being very generous with your time. We thank you so so much for um, playing with us this morning. I'm sure our listeners are going to love this. And, uh, you know, maybe down the road we can do it again at some other point. Listen, I admire the work you do. I love talking to other podcasters. Uh, You know, I do think that we, even though there's a lot of us now, we're still this kind of fraternity and we help each other out and we're we're pushing the boundaries, which I have to keep reminding myself of. I've become an evangelist about podcasting (laughs) to other people because I really believe it's empowering and people have all these gifts that they can now, you know, share with the world without these middlemen we talk 
talked about earlier. I love what you're doing. Keep up the good work, and I'd love to come on again. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Dan. You have a great day. You too. And so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Taoist Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as soon as they come out. You can keep track of Daniel at dbolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at richimon1. That's R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N, the numeral one. See you all soon.